Welcome to the Doc Washburn Show, the show that talks about what you actually care about. The Doc Washburn Show streams live at noon Eastern, 11 a.m. Central weekdays on the Podbean app, which you can download onto your smartphone. That's P-O-D-B-E-A-N and is available for download at Spotify, Apple, or wherever podcasts are available. The Doc Washburn Show is on Twitter and Facebook. You can email us at contact at docwashburnshow.com or call us at 866 609 3711. All right, this is episode 36 of the all-new Doc Washburn Show. It's Wednesday, December 1st. Yes, I was fired by one of the biggest radio companies in America, Cumulus Media, simply because I refused their vaccine mandate. Yes, it's obvious last November's presidential election was stolen. No, my old employer wouldn't let me say that on the radio. And yes, there is all kinds of evidence out there. A lot of people are having serious negative reactions to the vaccines. So this is a really different kind of talk show we are unmasked uncensored and unfiltered uh united states supreme court today hearing arguments in a case that could overturn roe v wade and we'll have a lot on that for you in just a moment but first let me tell you if you've tried to buy a car recently you realize there's such a a chip shortage out there that you may have a hard time finding the vehicle that you're looking for. People I know have actually bought cars, trucks, vans, SUVs, whatever, from hundreds of miles away from where they live. That's where Red River Your Way comes in. RedRiverYourWay.com is a big old car dealership in the middle of the USA that believes in freedom. The freedom to buy a car, truck, van, or SUV the way you want to. You can buy online, and they'll drive it to you no matter where you are. Red River Your Way wants to make your car buying experience as easy and transparent as possible. That's why they've added technology to their website that puts you in complete control of your payment options and allows you to complete the entire purchase process online. But don't worry. Red River experts are still there to help you every step of the way if you have any questions. Red River makes it so easy. As you browse their selection, you'll see each vehicle has a button that says Explore Payment Options. Clicking that guides you through a few easy questions that then create personalized payment options that you have full control over. All you have to do is adjust your preferences, and all the math happens automatically so you can determine what monthly payment works best for your budget. Red River Your Way makes car buying online easy. Your whole car buying process is completely transparent. If you want to buy a car, truck, van, or SUV, order online from the nationwide car dealer that believes in freedom. The dealer that will d- deliver your vehicle to your front door no matter where you live, RedRiverYourWay.com. You'll be glad you did. All right, uh, let's take a look. Let's take a look at, at what's going on today in the United States Supreme Court. It is a very historic day. And to the best of our ability, we're going to give you the play-by-play, the blow-by-blow of what happened today. Um, They just adjourned uh, their oral arguments moments before we started the live stream. Oral arguments in a case called Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health Organization, a case involving Mississippi's attempt to ban nearly all abortions after 15 weeks. 
The state has asked the court to overturn Roe v. Wade, and we are thankful that there is a uh, profile over there on Twitter called SCOTUS Blog, Independent News and Analysis in the U.S. Supreme Court. It's been around for almost 20 years now, and um, so they got the play-by-play, and then we also have some some audio from, from different sources of some of the questions and answers and arguments uh, today. Now, why is this important? Well, it's important because of all the blood that has been shed from innocent children in the womb since Roe v. Wade was decided January 22nd, 1973. 7-2. 7-2 in the U.S. Supreme Court. And um, it was horribly decided. There's nothing in the Constitution which says you have some kind of right to kill a baby in the womb. It's just not there. But Justice Blackman had been had changed his mind. He had at one time been pro-life, and his wife and his daughters had brought him around to being pro-abortion. And so he was looking for a case in which he could overthrow all the state laws against abortion in this country, and he found it in Roe v. Wade. How do I know this? Well, I read a book called The Brethren about the Supreme Court term of 72-73, written by Bob Woodward and Scott Armstrong, written many, many years ago. And that's what happened. And we have been dealing with with the ramifications ever since. A lot of people don't realize that Roe v. Wade set up a trimester scheme. Out of thin air, I mean, there's nothing in the Constitution about trimesters. But in the third trimester, and we'll get to the play-by-play here in a minute, in the third trimester, the U.S. Supreme Court said states could regulate abortion in the third trimester unless the mother's life or health was at stake. Now, what most Americans don't know is that the U.S. Supreme Court on January 22, 1973, handed down not only the Roe v. Wade decision, but the Doe v. Bolton decision, which described which defined the word health as being physical, mental, emotional. And so these two companion rulings, Roe v. Wade and Doe v. Bolton, opened the door for third trimester abortions for any reason whatsoever. Yeah, I'm, you know, 40 weeks pregnant, moments away from giving birth, but... uh, my other half left me, I'm bummed out, so I want to have a, an abortion. 
Now, most abortions do not happen that late, but it's legal. It's legal. There are abortionists in this country that specialize in third trimester. Just so you know. And for anybody with the sound of my voice thinking, oh, no, you're just making this up. You're just making this up. I would recommend you do an internet search for the name Paul Tiller. Paul Tiller. He specialized, he specialized in late-term abortions. Now, he was aborted himself many years after birth when uh, somebody came into his Lutheran church where he was an elder and shot and killed him. After that, HBO did a special called After Tiller in which they interviewed several other abortions from different uh, abortionists from different parts of the country who, again, specialized in third trimester abortions. So don't tell me it's not going on. I can't be held accountable for what you don't know. But it's just as evil in the first trimester as it is in the second or third trimester. It is written, you shall do no murder. And it's also written, if you take the life of a man, your life will be required of you. So our hope and our prayer is that the U.S. Supreme Court will do the right thing and protect the lives of these innocent children. It's, um, it's an outrage. What's being, done, what's being done is is an outrage, and there's no excuse for it, none whatsoever. So let's uh, let's take a look, starting with the uh, the SCOTUS blog, oral argument in Dobbs v. Jackson Women's Health Organization. Um. So the first argument today was from Scott Stewart, the Solicitor General of Mississippi. Stewart began by saying that Roe, which established the constitutional right to abortion in 1973, and Casey, which reaffirmed Roe's core holding in 1992, damaged the democratic process and poisoned the law. Clarence Thomas asked the first question. He noted that the court's abortion cases have generally focused on privacy and autonomy rather than on abortion specifically. He says, does it make a difference that we focus on privacy and autonomy or more specifically on abortion? Thomas asked Scott Stewart, the Solicitor General of Mississippi, If we don't overrule Casey or Roe, do you have a standard that you propose other than the undue burden standard? The undue burden standard, by the way, is the standard created by Casey, the case in 1992, to evaluate abortion regulations prior to viability. Again, again, remember now, 
There's nothing in the United States Constitution, nothing whatsoever about abortion. They just kind of made it up as they went along in 1973 and again in 1992. Just so you know. All right, back to the uh, the play-by-play here. Pardon me. So, Scott Stewart, Solicitor General of Mississippi, responding to Justice Thomas, said, if the court does not overturn Roe and Casey, it should at least discard the rule from those cases that states cannot prohibit abortions prior to viability, the point around 24 weeks of pregnancy when the baby can survive outside um, says here, outside the rule, that must be a, a typo. Actually, babies have been saved as early as 20 weeks. Scott Stewart suggests a clarified undue burden standard untethered from any bright line viability rule. Justice Stephen Breyer asked a lengthy and emphatic question about the importance of stare decisis, the concept that courts generally adhere to prior precedents. He quoted language in Casey stating that the court should be extremely reluctant to overturn, to overrule Roe. Justice Breyer said to re-examine a watershed would subvert the court's legitimacy. Then, Sonia Sotomayor, who has referred to herself as a wise Latina, picked up the same point about the danger to the Supreme Court's legitimacy. She noted that 15 justices over 30 years of varying political backgrounds had reaffirmed the viability line from Roe and Casey. Again, Roe, the case decided in 73, Casey, the case decided in 92. Sotomayor suggested that the architects of Mississippi's 15-week abortion ban, as well as Texas's six-week ban, which is also currently pending before the court, believe they can succeed at the Supreme Court merely because the membership of the court has changed. SCOTUS blog says Sotomayor is not pulling any punches. Quote, Will this institution survive the stench that this creates in the public perception that the Constitution and its reading are just political acts? I don't see how it's possible. Really? Well, now, that's just remarkable. That's just remarkable because Justice Sotomayor betrays herself. Isn't it clear? Isn't it clear from what she is saying here that politics are more important to her than the legal reasonings, than the legal arguments? The stench. Really? You want to use that word, the stench? Chief Justice John Roberts, who SCOTUS blog says, 
almost certainly will be a pivotal vote in this case, makes his first remarks of the day. He says fetal viability was not initially an issue in Roe v. Wade, and he says that Justice Blackman, the author of Roe v. Wade, later suggested that Roe's viability line was dicta. Well, you know, every once in a while, i got to look stuff up. Every once in a while, i got to look stuff up. Okay. Dicta is plural for dictum, which is a formal pronouncement from an authoritative source. Oh, okay. So, or an, an authoritative pronouncement, a judicial assertment. Oh. Okay. So, That's confusing. First of all, Justice Roberts says fetal viability was not initially an issue in Roe v. Wade. He says that Justice Blackman, the author of Roe v. Wade, later suggests that Roe's viability line was an authoritative statement, authoritative decision. I'm sorry, I don't follow. Then Amy Coney Barrett asks Mississippi State Solicitor Scott Stewart whether a ruling in favor of Mississippi would endanger other constitutional rulings on issues like the right to use birth control or the right to same-sex marriage. Stewart says no, abortion is different. Sotomayor pardon me, Sotomayor comes back. She responds to Scott Stewart's answer. She says his answer doesn't make sense. She notes that other cases on birth control, same-sex marriage, and other constitutional rights all rely on substantive due process, just like Roe and Casey. She said, they're all wrong according to your theater. Well, Justice Sotomayor, with all due respect, and I, I'm having a hard time finding any, there's nothing in the Constitution that talks about birth control or same-sex marriage. I don't know anybody who's trying to pass a law to undo birth control or same-sex marriage, but they're not in the Constitution. So Justice Elena Kagan says a major goal of Starry decisis, and again, what starry decisis is, is a legal concept, the legal principle of determining points in litigation according to precedent. In other words, the idea that you don't want to overturn precedent, okay? Elena Kagan says the major goal of stare decisis is to prevent people from thinking that this court is a political institution that will go back and forth depending on the court's changing membership or who yells the loudest. Kagan says for the court to overturn a prior precedent, usually there has to be a justification, a strong justification beyond the fact that some people think the precedent is wrong. Hey, hey, 
waving my hand. Oh, I know. I know a strong justification. It's time to stop dismembering babies. It's time to stop, stop slaughtering babies. Yeah, I got your justification right here. So Chief Justice Roberts asks Scott Stewart, solicitor of the state of Mississippi, who's arguing in favor of the Mississippi law to stop abortions after 15 weeks. Chief Justice Roberts asked him about Mississippi's evolving strategy in this case. When the state petitioned the court for review, it said the case would not require the court to overturn Roe and Casey, but after the court granted certification, or certiori, sorry, the state returned to a full assault on Roe and Casey. Stewart, not in a colloquy with Kagan, well, I got to look that up. Sorry, I, 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 uh, I skipped law school. I skipped law school. Oh, conversation. So why they couldn't use that word, I don't know. Stewart, not in a conversation with Kagan, says the best path is to overturn Roe and overturn Casey wholesale because the undue burden standard is extremely difficult for lower courts to apply. Oh, that's a typo. It should have said now in a colloquy with Kagan. Okay, so he's responding to, to Kagan. Brett Kavanaugh makes his first comments of the day. He confirms with Stewart that Mississippi is not arguing that the Supreme Court has the authority to ban all abortion or to order the states to ban abortion. Stewart readily agrees. Kavanaugh says, your argument is that the Constitution is neutral on the question of abortion, but leaves the issue for the people of the states or perhaps Congress to resolve in the democratic process. Stewart says yes. So what Kavanaugh what Kavanaugh is tacitly alluding to here is the argument by some abortion opponents that fetal life is protected under the 14th Amendment, a view that, if adopted, would essentially make abortion unconstitutional. Kavanaugh suggests he is not receptive to that view. The 14th Amendment. Let's see, what does the 14th Amendment say? All persons born or naturalized in the United States and subject to the jurisdiction thereof are citizens of the United States and other state wherein they reside. No state shall make or enforce any law which shall abridge the privileges or immunities of citizens of the United States, nor shall any state deprive any person of life, liberty, or property without due process of law. nor deny to any person within its jurisdiction the equal protection of the laws. Oh, I get it. I mean, that's section one. There are four sections. But you shall not deprive any person of life. Well, that's what you're doing with abortion. So I can see how the 14th Amendment, how Roe v. Wade and, and Casey would be violating the 14th Amendment, but Kavanaugh doesn't. 
And he makes a, a distinction between that and the idea that the concept that perhaps the court should be neutral on abortion, leave it up to the states. Okay. At this point, no more questions for Scott Stewart of Mississippi. Next up is Julie Reichelman of an organization called Center for Reproductive Rights. I, I think, you know, it, it would be more um, more rightly named something like uh, Center for Abortion Enthusiasts. But anyway, she represents Jackson Women's Health Organization, the only abortion clinic in Mississippi. Reichelman begins by saying that stare decisis presents an especially high bar here because Casey rejected every possible reason for overturning Roe. Chief Justice Roberts asks what the effects would be of moving the Roe slash Casey viability line back earlier in pregnancy. As a reminder, SCOTUS blog says viability is thought to be around 24 weeks. Mississippi's law would outlaw nearly all abortions after 15 weeks. Chief Justice Roberts says, if you think that the issue is one of choice, viability, it seems to me, doesn't have anything to do with choice. If it really is an issue about choice, why is 15 weeks not enough time? SCOTUS blog says, this is a very significant line of questioning from Roberts that suggests he is at least mulling the possibility of a ruling that would not formally overturn Roe or Casey, but would discard the viability line, opening the door to prohibitions on abortion earlier in pregnancy. Justice Neil Gorsuch asked his first question of the day. He suggests that the Casey undue burden test is unworkable and difficult for courts to administer, and he says that should be relevant in the stare decisis analysis. Reichelman, the pro-abortion lawyer, says the undue burden test is not actually an issue in this case because that test applies to abortion regulations, whereas the Mississippi law is a full-blown prohibition on abortions after 15 weeks. Justice Samuel Alito now questions Reichelman on the viability line from Roe and Casey. Alito suggests that the line is arbitrary, which it is, and doesn't make any sense, which it doesn't. Alito says if a woman wants to be free of the burdens of pregnancy, that interest does not disappear the moment the viability line is crossed. He says the fetus has an interest in having a life, and that doesn't change from the point before viability or after viability. Pro-abortion attorney Reichelman responds that viability is a principled line. Those are words, a principled line. Because the court in Roe and Casey had to balance competing interests and logically looked at the fetus's ability to survive outside the womb. She says it is an objective scientific line, not a religious or philosophical one. Well, you know, 
That's fascinating. That's fascinating because, again, there are still third trimester abortions done in this country. Just so you know. So Chief Justice Roberts and Justice Breyer returned to the topic of stare decisis. In other words, uh, the idea that it's, it's bad to overturn Supreme Court precedent. Roberts mentions that he found Breyer's statements about Casey and the importance of precedent quite compelling, but he questions some of Casey's discussion regarding precedent and asks if Casey represents super stare decisis. Chief Justice Clarence Thomas asks pro-abortion attorney Reichelman to identify the constitutional right that protects abortion. He says, is it privacy, autonomy? What would it be? She responds, it's liberty. It's the textual protection in the 14th Amendment that the state cannot deny someone liberty without the due process of law. Okay. So the 14th Amendment gets to apply to the mother, but not to the baby. Oh, I see. Oh, okay. Pro-abortion attorney Reichelman in response to questions from Samuel Alito, says, allowing a state to take control of a woman's body and force her to bear the burdens of pregnancy is a fundamental violation of her liberty. So then Kavanaugh returned to a concept that he raised earlier in the argument, the idea that the Supreme Court should be, quote, scrupulously neutral on the question of abortion, neither pro-choice nor pro-life, unquote. That, of course, would open it back up to the states, which is the situation that this country was in before Roe was decided. Pro-abortion lawyer Reichelman responds that the court rejected that same argument in Casey. Justice Kavanaugh lists numerous landmark cases from the court's history, including Brown versus Board of Education, in which the court overturned prior Supreme Court precedents. Kavanaugh says that the court has simply followed Starry decisis in those cases, the country would be a much different place. Then a big question here from Kavanaugh. He says, if we think that the prior precedents, Roe and Casey, are seriously wrong, if that, why then doesn't the history of this court's practice suggest that the right answer is to return to the position of neutrality? Pro-abortion attorney Reichelman responds to Kavanaugh. She says, the view that a precedent is wrong has never been enough to overrule that precedent. She says it requires a special justification, and she says Mississippi has not come forward with any special justifications here. She says that there's no less need today for women to be able to make the fundamental decision for themselves about their bodies, their lives, and their health. So then with her time being up, their bodies, what about the baby's body? She don't want to talk about that. With pro-abortion attorney Reichelman's time being up, U.S. Solicitor General Elizabeth Prelogar 
arguing on behalf of the Biden administration, which, of course, is supporting the abortion mill, she comes up to the lectern. She begins by saying the real-world effects of, over, of overruling Roe and Casey would be severe and swift. Yeah, it'd be horrendous. Uh, babies might live. Boy, that'd be severe and swift, wouldn't it? She says about half the states in the country would be expected to enact bans on all or nearly all abortions. Oh, my goodness. So stopping stopping people from being able to chop up babies, that'd be severe and swift. Wow. Wow, severe and swift. Imagine that. Anyway, Sotomayor and Breyer both try to respond to Kavanaugh's question about when it's acceptable for the court to overturn precedent. Breyer emphasizes a detailed passage in Casey that walks through the starry decisis analysis. He says he wants everyone to read that passage carefully. Alito asks... Preligar, the U.S. Solicitor General, if it's ever acceptable for the court to overturn precedent simply because that precedent is egregiously wrong. Solicitor General Preligar says, no, the court has never considered that enough of a reason to depart from stare decisis. Gorsuch says, if this court were to reject the viability line, do you see any other intelligible principle that the court could choose? Solicitor General Preligar says there's no line more principled than viability, but no matter what, the court should reaffirm the fundamental, fundamental liberty interest at stake. So do you realize how ironic this is that the Solicitor General of the United States an employee, that is, of the Biden regime has the gall to talk about principles? Just thought I'd throw that out there. Kavanaugh presses Solicitor General Preligar about the argument that the Roe-Casey framework accommodates both the interests of pregnant people and the interests in protecting fetal life. Pregnant people? Oh, so the SCOTUS blog has gone all transgender friendly. Pregnant people? Pretty sure that the arguments at the Supreme Court today uh, recognize the fact that only women get pregnant. Pretty sure they didn't talk about pregnant people. The SCOTUS blog claiming to be... Uh, Um, what's the word I'm looking for? To not take sides, to be, uh, well, I'm sorry, I'm at a loss. Doing sleep deprivation. <laughs> and yet they editorialize. Impartial. I guess that'd be a good word, Impartial. Pregnant people. Now, they're women. So Kavanaugh presses a, uh, 
Solicitor General Prelegar about the argument that the Roe-Casey framework accommodates both the interests of pregnant women and the interests in protecting fetal life, Kavanaugh is openly skeptical that it's possible to balance both interests. He says you can't accommodate both interests. You have to pick. That's a fundamental problem. And one interest has to prevail over the other at any given point in time. And that's why this is so challenging. Solicitor General Prelegar's time is up. Scott Stewart, back at the lectern for a rebuttal on behalf of Mississippi. Stewart invokes Kavanaugh's line about the court remaining scrupulously neutral. Yeah, that's the word I was looking for. Neutral on the question of abortion. He says that is exactly right. There are interests here on both sides. This is unique for the woman. Oh, he's not saying for the pregnant person? Yeah, for the woman. This is unique for the unborn child, too, whose life is at stake. Stewart closes by comparing Roe v. Wade to the egregiously wrong decision in Plessy versus Ferguson, the 1896 ruling that upheld race-based segregation and wasn't overturned until Brown versus Board of Education in 1954, so 58 years later. Stewart concludes his rebuttal and the chief gavels the argument to a close just under two hours after it began. So that was about 32 minutes ago. So, pardon me. And they say keep track of, stay tuned for in-depth analysis of the argument on scotusblog.com. Okay. So we go over to scotusblog.com. Well, I'll tell you what. Um, before we do that, before we do that, give me a, give me just a moment. I gotta I gotta get a drink of water. Um, yeah, this will this will only take a second, or maybe about thirty. Thanks for listening to the Doc Washburn Show. We are unmasked, uncensored, and unfiltered. Many of you have asked, how can we help support the show? Really easy. Go to DocWashburnShow.com and click Become a Patron at the top right corner of the website or click the Podbean logo where it says, Be My Patron on Podbean. We sure do appreciate your support of the Doc Washburn Show. All right. Yes, we do. Yes, we do. Now, we're, we're talking about health. And we're talking about uh, how deceptive, how fake, how false our government all, often is when it comes to our health. I'm old enough to remember 2009, Speaker Nancy Pelosi, remember this? Talking about uh, Obamacare, the so-called Affordable Care Act. And she said, well, uh, we're just going to have to pass it so uh, you can find out what's in it. Right. So let me ask you, did Obamacare, the so-called Affordable Care Act, actually make your health care more expensive? Were Barack Obama... Joe Biden, Harry Reid, and Nancy Pelosi lying to you. It wasn't affordable. 
Does your health insurance premium feel like a second mortgage? Does your sky-high deductible prevent you from going to the doctor? Do your sky-high co-pays keep you from going to the doctor? Now, if you answered yes to any of these questions, you need to get up with my friend Art Wilborn. Go to his website, myfamilyhealthplan.com. We link to it from our website. The first thing you see when you open this up, in big, bold letters, affordable plans. Save 30 to 50% on premiums. Personalized health coverage. Low to no deductible. No co-pays. That sound good to you? Good. Well, right below that, you click on the button that says schedule call now. And with Art Wilborn, not only do you save a whole lot of money in your premiums, not only do you get low to no deductibles, no co-pays, but you get an insurance plan that won't insult your morality. It won't force you to cover stuff like abortion that will violate your deeply held religious beliefs. So go to Art's website, myfamilyhealthplan.com, book a free consultation, and he'll make sure there are no gaps in your coverage. Man, that sounds good. Save money on your insurance at myfamilyhealthplan.com. You will be so glad you did. So glad you did. All right. That having been said. That having been said. I want to play for you some of the audio from uh, today's oral arguments. Let's uh, let's start off with Justice Thomas. See if we can do this right. General, would you specifically tell me, uh, uh, specifically uh, state what the right is? Is it specifically abortion? Is it uh, liberty? Is it autonomy? Is it privacy? The right is grounded in the liberty component of the 14th Amendment, Justice Thomas, but I think that it promotes interests in autonomy, bodily integrity, liberty, and equality. And I do think that it is specifically the right to abortion here, the right of a woman to be able to control without the state forcing her to continue a pregnancy, whether to carry that baby to term. I understand we're talking about abortion here. But what is confusing is that we, if, if we were talking about the Second Amendment, I know exactly what we're talking about. If we're talking about the Fourth Amendment, I know what we're talking about because it's written, it's there. What specifically is the right here? that we're talking about. Well, Justice Thomas, I think that the court in those other contexts with respect to those other amendments has had to articulate what the text means and the bounds of the constitutional guarantees, and it's done so through a variety. I hate when it does that. I made a huge mistake. I was playing the audio. If you're not on Twitter, this isn't going to make any sense to you. But I, uh, I save things on Twitter by bookmarking them, okay? By bookmarking them. And um, every once in a while, Twitter decides, hey, time to refresh that line of bookmarks. Time to refresh it. 
And when they do that, all of a sudden, if you're playing a video, it's like, no, we're going to stop. We're going to stop. So what I should always do before I play video, the audio from video off of Twitter on my computer is always right-click and open up a new, a new tab. But I'm working about four hours of sleep, and uh, I'm technologically challenged, and so sometimes I don't do that. So I apologize. But um, this line of questioning is so important and so crucial I'm going to start it all over again, and I think we'll play the whole thing this time, and I apologize for the inconvenience. General, would you specifically tell me uh, uh, specifically? Uh, and the voice you're hearing is the voice of Clarence Thomas. Uh, state what the right is. Is it specifically abortion? Is it uh, liberty? Is it autonomy? Is it privacy? The right is grounded in the liberty component of the 14th Amendment, Justice Thomas, but I think that it promotes interests in autonomy, bodily integrity, liberty, and equality. And I do think that it is specifically the right to abortion here, the right of a woman to be able to control without the state forcing her to continue a pregnancy, whether to carry that baby to term. I understand we're talking about abortion here. Wait, she said baby. She didn't say fetus. She knows the baby. Did you catch that? All right. Able to control without the state forcing her to continue a pregnancy, whether to carry that baby to term. So she knows we're talking about murder here. She knows we're talking about an innocent human being, and she doesn't care because she's getting paid. More from Clarence Thomas. I understand we're talking about abortion here. But what is confusing is that we, if, if we were talking about the Second Amendment, I know exactly what we're talking about. If we're talking about the Fourth Amendment, I know what we're talking about because it's written, it's there. What specifically is the right here? that we're talking about. Well, Justice Thomas, I think that the court in those other contexts with respect to those other amendments has had to articulate what the text means and the bounds of the constitutional guarantees. And it's done so through a variety of different tests that implement First Amendment rights, Second Amendment rights, Fourth Amendment rights. So I don't think that there is anything unprecedented or anomalous about the right that the court articulated in Rowan Casey and the way that it implemented that right by defining the scope of the liberty interest uh, by reference to viability and providing that that is the moment when the balance of interest tips and when the state can act to prohibit a woman from from getting an abortion based on its interest in protecting the fetal life at that point. So the right specifically is abortion? It's the right of a woman prior to viability to control whether to continue with a pregnancy, yes. Thank you. So when you're trying to rationalize murder... Uh, you can twist yourself into all kinds of uh, rhetorical pretzels, can't you? Just so you know. Just so you know. All right, let's... Uh, General, would you... No, no, wait, wait, wait. I, no, 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 not, not for a third time. Let's, uh, let's grab some more. Let's grab some more audio uh, from today. Let's see, where, um, 
Where where did I where did I save the rest of it? Oh yeah, over here. Okay. So let's see. Here is uh here is Sotomayor. Or the self-described wise Latina. Now, um, the sponsors of this bill, the House bill in Mississippi, said we're doing it because we have new justices. The newest ban that Mississippi has put in place, the six-week ban, the Senate sponsor said we're doing it because we have new justices on the Supreme Court. Will this institution survive the stench that this creates in the public perception that the Constitution and its reading are just political acts. Well, again, they're political acts for her because, again, she knows there's nothing in the Constitution about abortion. So she seems to be projecting her viewpoint on everybody else. Just so you know, more from the self-described wise Latina, Sonia Sotomayor. I, I don't see how it is possible. It's what Casey talked about when it talked about watershed decisions. Some of them, Brown versus Board of Education, it mentioned, and this one. Is it just me or does she sound like she's chewing on her lapel? I don't know. Have such an entrenched set of expectations in our society that this is what the court decided, this is what we will follow, that, the, that we won't be able to survive if people believe that everything, including New York versus Sullivan, um, I could name any other set of rights, including the Second Amendment, by the way, there are many political people who believe the court erred in um, seeing this as a personal right as, a, as opposed to a militia right. If people actually believe that it's all political, how will we survive? How will the court survive? Uh, Justice Sotomayor, I, I think the concern about appearing political makes it absolutely imperative that the court reach a decision well-grounded in the Constitution, in text, structure, history, and tradition, and that carefully goes through the stare decisis factors Casey we've laid out. That. No, it didn't. Casey Honor, went through every one of them. You think it did it wrong. That's your belief. And he is correct. It did it wrong. Now, Chief Justice Roberts. And by the way, um, shout out to uh, Mark Joseph Stern, staff writer over at Slate Magazine of all places, who captured a lot of this audio. So there are no, no cameras in the Supreme Court, but we do have audio. Chief Justice Roberts suggests that the bright line rule established in Roe and Casey, no total abortion bans before fetal viability, was completely arbitrary. So the question is, is he ready to abolish the viability line, which is, they say, 24 weeks? Would he be willing to uphold the 
the state ban in Mississippi, that law at 15 weeks. So, so let's hear from uh, Roberts because you never know. He's, uh, he's all over the place on a regular basis. Uh, was, I, I know what it said about viability in Roe, but was viability an issue in the case? I know it wasn't briefed or argued. It, it, it was um, It was not issue, an issue certainly the way it is an issue here, Your Honor. I, I think um, it was to the extent that the court had to, over, had to um, reaffirm Roe, I, the way to read that as something other than dicta would be done. I'm, I'm sorry. Go ahead. I don't know what that said. Was it an issue in Roe? Oh, in, in Roe. Yeah. I'm sorry, Your Honor. Um, my understanding is no. I mean, the, the law there was uh, didn't have a viability tag. That was inserted by In fact, if I remember correctly, and I, I, it's an unfortunate source, but it's there. Uh, in his papers, Justice Blackmun said that the viability line was actually was dicta. Um, and presumably he had some insight on the question. I, I think, and I'd, I'd add, Your Honor, Justice Blackman, and I think as well his papers, pointed out the arbitrary nature of it and, and the line-drawing problems and in then, there, too. And then in Casey, Casey said that that was the core principle or the central principle in Roe, viability. It said that after tossing out the trimester formula, which many people thought was the core, uh, core principle. But was viability at issue in Casey? I don't think it was squarely an issue, Your Honor. Um, I, again, it's it's a little hard not to take the court at its word when it emphasized that viability, the, vi, the viability is, is the central part of Rose, Rose holding and saying that it is reaffirming that. So we kind of take that as, it's, as it stands, but the court has not, it, it did not face a law like this, certainly, Mr. Chief Justice. That's fascinating. It's fascinating because Roberts points out that uh, most everybody thought that the trimester scheme set up in Roe, which is, you know, just out of thin air, came nowhere from the Constitution, that that was the core holding of Roe was the trimester scheme. And then Casey was like, no, no, it's the viability deal. No, 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 forget about trimesters. This is a viability. So in its attempt to uphold Roe v. Wade, Didn't the Casey case, was it Casey versus Planned Parenthood, Pennsylvania, actually turn Roe inside out? So, 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 so how is that respecting stare decisis? How is that respecting precedent? Anyway, um, <clears throat> again, much thanks to Mark Joseph Stern over the slate of all places for collecting all this audio from the Supreme Court. Next, after Sotomayor suggests that overturning Roe would imperil other precedents protecting contraception and gay rights, Justice Amy Coney Barrett asks if the court could overrule Roe in a way that preserves those precedents. Sounds like she's preemptively saying Roe is dead, but those are safe. So let's let's see exactly what she does say say here, and and wonder if the guy from Slate is kind of overdoing it. 
Um, would a decision in your favor call any of the questions, uh, any of the cases, sorry, that Justice Sotomayor is identifying into question? Uh, no, Your Honor. I, I think for a couple reasons. Um, first of all, I think the vast run of those cases, and some mentioned from time to time, are thinking you know, Griswold, Lawrence, o Obergefell. These are these are cases that draw clear rules. You can't ban contraception. Can't ban intimate romantic relationships between consenting adults. Can't ban marriage of people of the same sex. Clear rules that have engendered uh, strong reliance interests um, and that have not produced negative consequences or all the many other uh, negative story decisions considerations we pointed out, Your Honor. Also, I, I'd add, none of them involve um, the purposeful termination of a human life. So those two, those two features, stare decisis and termination of a human life, Your Honor, um, puts all of those safely out of reach if the court overrules here. Termination of a human life. Again, Solicitor General of the United States for the Biden administration referred to the unborn as a baby. So she knows what we're talking about here. Not uh, not a lump of clump of cells, not a fetus, but a baby. Just so you know. Mark Joseph Stern over at Slate says Barrett and Kavanaugh's softball questions to the Mississippi Solicitor General suggest to me that both of them are prepared to overrule Roe v. Wade while saying, one, other precedents, same-sex marriage, contraception, are safe. Contraception, that was the Griswold versus Connecticut decision in the mid-60s. And two, the court won't mandate abortion bans. So then we come down to a question from Justice Kavanaugh, which, of course, Mark Joseph Stern, over the slate, you got to be liberal to write for the slate, says, this is a ridiculous question from Kavanaugh. No one thinks Mississippi is arguing that the Supreme Court must mandate abortion bans. He says, Kavanaugh is moving the Overton window. He's telling the public, we won't force states to allow abortion or ban abortion. We're so moderate. Okay, now wait a minute. Wait a minute, wait a minute, wait, 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 wait. See, the problem is when people use terms that they just assume that everybody understands. Now, I know that Glenn Beck many years ago wrote a book about the Overton window, but I didn't read it. The Overton window is the range of policies politically acceptable by the mainstream population at a given time. It's also known as the window of discourse. Ah, okay. So this Mark Davis Stern guy at Slate thinks that unfettered abortion all nine months for any reason whatsoever is acceptable to the majority of Americans. He can't possibly think that, but that seems to be the implication here. Anyway, I, I do appreciate Mr. Stern capturing all this audio. So uh, let's go with Kavanaugh next. I want to be uh, clear about what you're arguing and not arguing. Yeah. Um, and to be clear, you're not arguing that the court somehow has the authority to itself uh, prohibit abortion or that this court has the authority to order the states to prohibit abortion. 
as I understand it, correct? Correct, Your Honor. And as I understand it, you're arguing that the Constitution is silent and therefore neutral on the question of abortion. In other words, that the Constitution is neither pro-life nor pro-choice on the question of abortion, but leaves the issue for the people of the states or perhaps Congress to resolve in the democratic process. Is that accurate? Right. We're saying it's left to the people, Your Honor. And so for the, uh, if you were to prevail, um, the states, uh, majority of states, or states still could or, and presumably would, continue to freely allow abortion. Many states, some states, would be able to do that even if you prevail on, under your view. Is that correct? That's consistent with our view, Your Honor. It's, it's one that um, allows all interests to have full voice. And, and many of the abortions we see in certain states that I don't think anybody would think would be moving to change their laws in a more restrictive direction. Yeah. That's what would happen. See, a lot of people don't understand. If you overturn Roe v. Wade, that doesn't mean that abortion is automatically against the law in all 50 states. It just returns it to the states. And a lot of states still have laws on the books um, outlawing abortion. If I recall correctly, as of January 2nd, 1973, when Roe v. Wade was decided, um, 33 states still had laws on the books outlawing abortion. Um, 17 had liberalized their abortion laws. Sadly, one of those states was North Carolina, the state I grew up in. I'll never forget. I'll never forget. Never forget. 1967, my mother and my grandmother had taken my little brothers and me shopping. A place called Charlottetown Mall. They had a big mall close to downtown Charlotte. And we got to the central court. My mother and my grandmother became visibly um, agitated. Very upset. And I had to ask why. What's what's going on? What what, what are you what are you upset about? I noticed there were two tables set across from each other at the Central Court of Charlottetown Mall, nineteen sixty seven, and there were two women sitting at each table, and there were people going over and signing petitions, and they explained to me that the two women at one table wanted abortion to become legal in North Carolina. The two women at the other table wanted abortion to remain illegal. And, of course, I had to ask, what is abortion at 11 years old? And I don't remember the exact words, but I knew what it meant from then, then on out. I knew they wanted to make it legal to kill babies before they were born. And how horrible that sounded to an 11-year-old. And it's just as horrible today. So anyway, Mark Joseph Stern, and by the way, I'll tell you in a few why I think abortion is still legal all these years, years later. Mark Joseph Stern 
at Slate giving his running commentary here. He says, Kavanaugh is using these arguments. Um, arguments about Supreme Court being neutral on abortion and returning the issue to the states. He's using these arguments to claim that returning abortion to the states is the new middle ground. Stern says, I think this is pretty clearly over. There are obviously five votes to overturn Roe v. Wade. Then he says, Roberts is floating a compromise that allows abortion bans at 15 weeks or perhaps earlier, but reserves the right early in pregnancy. He says, but I don't hear any takers. Barrett and Kavanaugh do not sound remotely interested. Then the question from Amy Coney Barrett is basically game over for Roe. She says, now that all, and by the way, SCOTUS blog didn't cover this. So again, I'm thankful to a guy that I probably agree with on very little politically, Mark David Stern, pardon me, Mark Joseph Stern over the slate for kind of filling in some of the blanks that SCOTUS blog left empty. And he's even got the, the audio here. This question from Amy Coney Barrett is basically game over for Roe. She says, now that all 50 states have safe haven laws that let women relinquish parental rights after birth, in other words, you can literally drop the baby off, no questions asked, at a fire station or something like that in the middle of the night. She says the, the burdens of parenthood discussed in Roe and Casey are irrelevant and the decisions are obsolete because of these safe haven laws in all 50 states. How about that? Check it out. So petitioner points out that in all 50 states, you can terminate parental rights by relinquishing a child after abortion. And I think the shortest period might have been 48 hours, if I'm remembering the data correctly. So it, it seems to me, seen in that light, both Rowan Casey emphasized the burdens of parenting. And insofar as you and many of your amici focus on the ways in which the forced parenting, forced motherhood would hinder women's access to the workplace and to equal opportunities, it's also focused on the consequences of parenting and the obligations of motherhood that flow from pregnancy. Why don't the safe haven laws take care of that problem? It seems to me that it focuses the burden much more narrowly. There is, without question, an infringement on bodily autonomy, you know, which we have in other contexts like vaccines. Um, however, it doesn't seem to me to follow that pregnancy and then parenthood are all part of the same burden. And so it seems to me that the choice more focused would be between, say, the ability to get an abortion at 23 weeks or the state requiring the woman to go 15, 16 weeks more and then terminate parental rights at the conclusion. Why, why didn't you address the safe haven laws and why don't they matter? I think they don't matter for a couple of reasons, Your Honor. First, um, even if some of those laws are new since Casey, the idea that a woman could place a child up for adoption has, of course, been true since Roe. So it's a consideration that the court already had before it when it decided those cases and adhered to the viability line. But in addition, um, we don't just focus on the burdens of parenting, and neither did Roe and Casey. Instead, pregnancy itself is unique. It imposes unique physical demands and risks risk on women and in fact has impact on all of their lives.
lives, on their ability to care for other children, other family members, on their ability to work. Um, and in particular, in Mississippi, those risks are alarmingly high. It's 75 times more dangerous to give birth in Mississippi than it, uh, than it is to have a pre-viability abortion, and those risks are disproportionately threatening the lives of women of color. Think anybody believes that? Do you think anybody actually believes that? It's 75 times more, uh, what were the words there? Hang on, hang on. Let's do this again. ...of parenting, and neither did Roe and Casey. Instead, pregnancy itself is unique. It imposes unique physical demands and risk on women, and in fact has impact on all of their lives, on their ability to care for other children, other family members, on their ability to work. Um, and in particular, in Mississippi, those risks are alarmingly high. It's 75 times more dangerous to give birth in Mississippi than it, uh, than it is to have a pre-viability abortion, and those risks are disproportionate threatening the lives of women of color threatening the lives of women of color um yeah the abortion i don't know how to tell you but the abortion industry targets women of color the roots of the abortion industry planned parenthood margaret sanger she's a racist she was a racist she wanted fewer babies from folks who didn't look like her I've said it before, but I'll say it again. I think it bears repeating. Dr. Alveda King, niece of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., said Planned Parenthood has been able to achieve what the KKK, what the Klan, could not have even dreamed of. The genocide, the murder of all these millions, millions of black babies. Women of color, my elbow. You, uh, you target and you maim women of color. Okay, more, more from Amy Coney Barrett. Mark Joseph Stern over the slate says she adopts Mississippi's argument that the availability of adoption obviates, obviates the need for abortion. Okay, here we go. Color. So are you saying, I, I mean, actually, as I read Rowan Casey, they don't talk very much about adoption. It's a passing reference that, that means out of the obligations of parenthood. But as I hear this answer, then, are you saying that it, the right, as you conceive of it, is grounded primarily in the bearing of the child and the carrying of the pregnancy and not so much looking forward into the consequences on professional opportunities and work life and economic burdens? No, Your Honor. I believe it's both, and, it, and that is exactly how Casey talked about it. It talked about the two strands of cases that supported the right. One was the strand of cases supporting um, bodily integrity, and it cited to cases like Cruzan and Riggins versus Nevada. And the second was the strand of cases supporting decisional autonomy, and specifically decisions related to childbearing, marriage, and procreation decisions like Griswold, Loving. And so it's really both strands that we're relying on here. Color. So are you saying? Okay. Again, any justification, any justification, um, any rationalization, lawyers get paid to represent their clients. And they'll, they'll stretch. It doesn't have to make sense. They'll stretch. They'll stretch. Okay. Um, 
So as Mark Joseph Stern of the Slate said, uh, Justice Barrett adopted Mississippi's argument that the availability of uh, adoption obviates the need for abortion. Yeah, there's no need for abortion, pal. There's no need to kill babies. Uh, he says Kavanaugh does the same thing where he summarizes his own position while attributing it to the other side. Oh, really? Are you sure? Let's check it out. I think the other side would say that the core problem here is that the court uh, has been forced by the position you're taking and by the, the cases to pick sides on uh, the most contentious social debate in American life and to do so in a situation where they say uh, that the Constitution is neutral on the question of abortion, the text and history, that the Constitution's neither pro-life nor pro-choice on the question of abortion, uh, and they would say, therefore, it should be left to the people, to the states, um, or or to Congress. Uh, And I think they also then continue, because the Constitution is neutral, that this court should be scrupulously neutral on the question of abortion, neither pro-choice nor pro-life. But because they say the Constitution doesn't give us the authority, we should leave it to the states and we should be scrupulously neutral on the question. And that they are saying here, I think, that we should return to a position of neutrality uh, on that contentious social issue rather than continuing to pick sides on that issue. So I think that's at a big picture level their argument. I want to give you a chance to respond to that. Yes, a, f- a few points, if I may, Your Honor. First, of course, those very same arguments were made in Casey, and the court rejected them, saying that um, this philosophical disagreements can't be resolved in a way that a woman has no choice in the matter. And second, I don't think it would be a neutral position. The Constitution provides a guarantee of liberty. The court has interpreted that liberty to include the ability to make decisions related to chi- childbearing, marriage, and family. Women have an equal li- right to liberty under the Constitution, Your Honor, and if they're not able to make this decision, if states can take control of women's bodies and force them to endure months of pregnancy and childbirth, then they will never have equal status under the Constitution. Yes, equal status. So women should have the liberty, the same liberty men have to kill babies. Wait, what? Equal status? What? Women will never have equal status unless abortion remains legal. Would do men have the right to kill babies? You know, sometimes these people are too clever by half. I just, uh, I just, uh, I'm just saying here. Oh, good, good, good. Mark Joseph Stern over the slate has more audio from today's oral arguments. In the Mississippi case, here's one of Justice Kavanaugh, Brett Kavanaugh, saying that some of the important cases in history have actually overruled precedent. If you think about some of the most important cases, the most consequential cases in this court's history, there's a string of them where the cases overruled precedent. Brown v. Board, uh, outlawed separate but equal. Uh, Baker versus Carr, which set the stage for one person, one vote. 
West Coast Hotel, which recognized the state's authority to regulate business. Miranda versus Arizona, which required police to give warnings when the right to about the right to remain silent and to have an attorney present to suspects in criminal custody. Lawrence v. Texas, which said that the state may not prohibit same-sex conduct. Knapp versus Ohio, which held that the exclusionary rule applies to state criminal prosecutions to exclude evidence obtained in violation of the Fourth Amendment. Gideon versus Rain Wainwright, which guaranteed the right to counsel in criminal cases. Obergefell, which recognized the constitutional right to same-sex marriage. In each of those cases, and that's uh, a list and I could go on, and those are some of the most consequential and important in the court's history, the court overruled uh, precedent. And um, it turns out uh, if the court in those cases had, had listened and they were presented in our, with arguments in those cases, adhere to precedent in Brown v. Board, adhere to Plessy, uh, in West Coast Hotel, adhere to Atkins, and adhere to Lochner. And if the court had done that in those cases, uh, you know, this, the country would be a much different place. So I assume you agree with most, if not all, the cases I listed there where the court overruled precedent. So the question uh, on stare decisis is why if, and I know you disagree with what I'm about to say in the if, if we think that uh, the prior precedents are seriously wrong, if that, why then doesn't the history of this court's practice with respect to those cases tell us that the right answer is actually to return to the position of neutrality? Yeah. So the lib over at Slate, uh, Mark Joseph Stern, says, Kavanaugh is saying that some of the Supreme Court's most celebrated decisions overruled precedent, and overruling Roe and Casey will deserve celebration because it restores the court's neutrality and returns the abortion debate to the states and Congress. Yeah. Yeah, he did. Mar Joseph Stern does not sound happy over the slate when he says, The case is submitted. The Supreme Court will overturn Roe v. Wade in June 2022. Half the states will have complete or near total bans on abortion within six months. He says, just to be clear, this is my prediction. Based on today's oral arguments, we will likely get a decision in June. Well, you know, this is ironic, Mr. Stern, because it doesn't sound like you believe in God, but from your lips to God's ears. Yes, indeed. Wouldn't that be wonderful? Wouldn't that be wonderful? Now, um, Alexandra De Sanctis Mar, writer over at National Review, says Roberts was correct. Chief Justice Roberts was actually correct when he said U.S. abortion policy is extreme compared to the rest of the world. She said, we're one of only seven countries in the world to allow abortion after 20 weeks of pregnancy. Nearly all European countries limit abortion to 12 or at most 15 weeks. 
She says the fact that Reichelman, the pro-abortion attorney for the only abortion mill in Mississippi, outright lied in response to this question says a lot. The facts on this case, pardon me, the facts on this are easily available. Roberts was correct, and she just couldn't admit it. So interesting responses here. We have somebody who says, if the pregnant woman's life is in danger, then saving her life takes precedence. In response, a quote from the late great C. Everett Koop, former U.S. Surgeon General, who said, in my 36 years in pediatric surgery, I have never known of one instance where the child had to be aborted to save the mother's life. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. That's true. All right, uh, that having been said, we, uh, we have a lot to pray about between now and June. I hope that this Mark uh, Stern guy at the slate is right. You know, I hope that when Mark Joseph Stern says, based on today's questioning, it's pretty obvious you have at least five votes to overturn Roe, and that'll happen in June, and within six months after that, half the states will ban abortion. I hope he's right. Now, if I may quote from the great Molly Hemingway over the Federalist, She says, totally apart from politics and law, a quick message for younger women, it is a disgusting and violent lie to assert, as some do, that you have to be able to kill your children to have a fulfilling life as a woman. Violence against children is never necessary or good. Now, in response to... Amy Coney Barrett's point that since all 50 states now have safe haven laws, that when Roe v. Wade and Casey versus Planned Parenthood of Pennsylvania both talk about the burdens of parenthood, that's obsolete because all 50 states have safe haven laws. You don't have to be a parent. You can turn the baby over as soon as you have it. Uh, The great Aaron Worthing Walker over on Twitter says, if there was any state that required a woman who gave birth to raise the child, I'd be more sympathetic with the Supreme Court saying that was unconstitutional than saying that abortion is a constitutional right. Exactly. Exactly. The great Jack Posobiec, senior editor, Human Events, says, Justice Thomas is reeling them in. He's asking them to tell him where any of this is written in the Constitution. And abortion Beckys are flailing about. They know there's no textual basis for Roe v. Wade. And the great uh, Dana Lash, nationally syndicated radio talk show host, 
says it's hard to argue that the state is taking control of a woman's body when it was a woman's and man's choice to participate in an action that may result in conception. Dissatisfaction with a long-known potential outcome of an action is not the same as denial of autonomy. Amen. And then the great Matt Walsh says, is the unborn child a human being? Yes. Does abortion intentionally kill a human being? Yes. Is it always wrong and should it always be illegal to intentionally kill an innocent and defenseless human being? Yes. The abortion question really is not complicated. Right, but uh, you have lawyers who get paid to say that it is. Who get paid to say that it is. Folks over at lifenews.com say Justice Amy Coney Barrett destroys the argument that pregnancy and parenthood are somehow limiting for women. As a mom of seven children, Justice Barrett should know. Yes, yes, indeed. The great Jenna Ellis, former counsel for President Trump, says Justice Alito is proving that viability is an arbitrary philosophical line that cannot be justified as counsel argues principled. She says an unborn child has an interest in life. Amen. It's a shame we've had to wait all these years for that case to be made. You know? It's a shame We've had to wait all these years for that case to be made. What has been going on in this country? What has been going on in this country all these years is an outrage. It's, it's absolutely an outrage. And it's time to put a stop to it. It really is. It's, it's absolutely a time to put a stop to it. And I want to share with you uh, some thoughts from some thinkers who are a lot sharper than I am. But before I do that, I'd love to share with you the um, best-kept secret in American healthcare. Best-kept secret in American healthcare. So let me tell you about my wife. When we were still dating. We're engaged to be married, but we're still dating. New Year's Eve of 2015, we had recently returned from visiting my family down in Florida, 
And New Year's Eve, all day long, I couldn't get a hold of her. I called and called and called, couldn't get a hold of her. And um, I didn't know her kids well enough to have their phone numbers yet. And so um, that evening, though, one of them sent me a private message on Facebook and said, Doc, Mama woke up this morning and she couldn't catch her breath. And um, Jason's girlfriend had to drive her 80 miles an hour to get her to the ER at Baptist. And um, she's in a medically induced coma. And I'm like, medically induced what? Coma? And what I didn't know at the time was that just meant that um, they had to put her under to try to stabilize her so she could breathe normally. Well, that was uh, alarming for me. She had already been told she had had, um, COPD. And um, I didn't know what to think. She was in this medically induced coma, I guess, for two and a half days. She was in the hospital for a total of nine days. So when she got out of the hospital, I took her to the Arkansas Upper Cervical Center to see if she needed to get her atlas adjusted. Now, if you've never heard me talk about this before, let me explain it to you briefly. Your skull weighs anywhere from 8 to 15 pounds. It rests on your spinal column. Top bone of your spinal column, the atlas, the C1, only weighs... About two ounces. So it's really easy for that atlas to get out of alignment. If it does, your spinal column can tend to get kinked up like a chain. If that happens, that tends to restrict your central nervous system's ability to send impulses to the rest of your body the way God designed it to do. It can affect your respiratory system, reproductive system, digestive system, and yes, it even caused migraines and neck pain. It can all kinds of different problems. So I took I took Peggy, then my fiance, now my wife, to see Dr. J.R. Crabtree at the Arkansas Upper Circle Center. And he took the x-rays of her head and neck, and sure enough, her atlas was out of alignment. So he adjusted her atlas. And as we were leaving the office, about to get in the car, she said, Doc, this is crazy. I said, what? She said, the big toe on my left foot has felt numb and tingly for years and now feels normal. And I said, right. Okay, that's good. That afternoon, I was doing my um, radio talk show, and she texted me, and I looked during a commercial break. She said, hey, guess what? I don't have my regular daily backache. I'm like, good. Good. And then a few days later, she told me, she said, you know, I haven't had a headache in the few days since I got my atlas adjusted. And I said, well, now, how often... How often are you used to having headaches? 
And she said, oh, every day. Every day. So a few weeks later, she had to go to a uh, a follow-up appointment from having been in the hospital for nine days. And um, the follow-up appointment was with a respiratory specialist. And he did all the tests that you do with somebody, you know, who who had COPD, who had a, a breathing issue and had to be put under for a few days. And he frankly, he frankly expressed dismay. He was baffled. He said, I don't understand. You don't have COPD. She's like, well, that's, that was the diagnosis. That's what they told me. That's no, you don't have COPD. You're, you're fine. I don't know how you wound up in the hospital with breathing issues, but you're fine. So. <laughs> that having been said. That having been said. We thank God for the Arkansas Upper Cervical Center. Their, their website is turnmypoweron.com. Now, if you're listening from outside of central Arkansas, uh, there is a tab on their website that allows you to look for a doctor who does what they do. You know, somewhere closer to where you live. So that would be a good thing. That would be a good thing. Turnmypoweron.com. Click on Find a Doctor, and you'll be glad you did. You'll be really glad you did. I uh, had hoped and prayed for years because this is the best kept secret in American healthcare. I had hoped and prayed for years to have the opportunity to share this on some sort of national basis. And the only way I knew how to do it was to, um, you know, be nationally syndicated on the radio. It'd be on a bunch of radio stations. Never occurred to me I could do it this way. So I'm really thankful. Really thankful for this opportunity. So, so yeah, it's going to be, um, a wonderful thing if the media people looking at today's Supreme Court questioning are correct and there are at least five votes to overturn Roe. That would be a fantastic thing. No question about it. Now, um, that having been said, oh, I know what I forgot to do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let me uh, let me grab this real quick. Let me grab this real quick. We need to do one of these things. Yeah, here we go. Here we go. 
We interrupt this program to bring you a special report. It's the Doc Washburn Show Tweet of the Day. And your Tweet of the Day is brought to you by RedRiverYourWay.com. Red River Your Way is the is the car dealer, the nationwide car dealer that believes in freedom. Your freedom to buy the car the way you want to. Okay? Red River Your Way. Go to the website, redriveryourway.com. Um, today's Tweet of the Day is one of the funniest things I think I've read in a long time. And uh, <laughs> it, it started... It started over on Facebook and it spread to Twitter. It was so funny on Facebook, somebody on Twitter started posting um, screenshots. And it's just one of the funniest things. There's this lady on Twitter Pardon me, the lady on Facebook, but it got posted over on Twitter. So that makes it a tweet. But on Facebook, and I shared this on my Facebook page last night. She posts a picture of a pie that she burned. And she tagged Marie Callender's. She said, thanks, Marie Callender, for ruining Thanksgiving dessert. Uh, <laughs> And uh, <laughs> and so I posted on my uh, on my Facebook because it's just crazy. I mean, what I said on Facebook was, "Have y'all seen this?" Apparently, Sharon. Her name is Sharon Weiss. I don't mind sharing her name because. She still got it up on December 1st. She posted on November 25th, so she's beyond embarrassment. I said, apparently Sharon was supposed to cook the pie at 375 degrees, but unfortunately she cooked it for 375 minutes or turned the broiler on instead of the oven or maybe both. Anywho, she's blaming it all on poor old Marie Callender's. Take a look at the comments. Some of the funniest things I have ever read in my life. And, uh, <laughs> yeah. Um, you ever seen the, the cartoon of the dog sitting in the room full of fire saying, this is fine. That's Sharon baking her pie. Um, no, I don't want to old this, uh, most relevant, most relevant. That that's, that's where you really, Marie Callender said, Hi, Sharon. Thanks for your post. We're really sorry to hear our pumpkin pie let you down this year. We'd like to get in touch with you so we can hear more and help. Please send us a private message. Reference this number so we can connect. And uh, <laughs> the first response to Marie Callender's is from a woman who said, Please send her a larger version of the back of your box. 
Uh, another woman says, send it in the mail certified so she can't say she didn't get it and blame another bird pie on them. This, this is, it, it is, uh, it's really amazing. Um, some people <laughs> are saying that the problem was that uh, Sharon herself was baked, uh, before she, uh, put the pie in the oven, <laughs> uh, <laughs> Oh my goodness. Yeah, it's uh <laughs> it, it's just I still can't get over the idea that oh there are ten thousand comments, by the way. There are ten thousand comments. I still can't get over the idea that she burned the pie. And and she's trying to uh, blame it on Marie Calendars. A lady posts a picture of her baby who looks like he just woke up from a nap. She says, he was asleep on me until these comments had me howling. And now I got to start the twins nap time all over again. Thanks, Sharon. Another one says, Ms. Weiss, you misspelled I don't know how to follow instructions on a box. Another guy says, you're complaining about your food that, let's be honest, you ruined, while the last fundraiser in which you participated was, ironically, no kid hungry. Another guy says, there's people who didn't get a meal, much less pie, and you're out here complaining about this. Be grateful for what you have. Um, another lady says, ma'am, where in the recipe says you got to bake it in the actual sun? <laughs> Here's the guy that says, Sharon, Mimi, and I are sorry about the pie. We had the grands over for Thanksgiving yesterday, and today I have an appointment at the clinic, and Mimi is getting her hair done. Hope you and Ernest have a good weekend and better luck with future pies. <laughs> Comments are roasting her harder than she roasted the pie. <clears throat> Let's see. Here's another one. I get it, Sharon. I didn't put enough coffee grounds in the coffee maker this morning. And the coffee came out weak. Another one has a uh, a gif a gif from a, a cartoon of uh, SpongeBob trying to blow out a fire. Says this is a picture of Sharon baking her pie. Oh, here's another one. Just a side note: it's I think it's time to change the batteries in your smoke detector, Sharon. <clears throat> How about this? I'm no culinary genius or anything, but I'm pretty sure the instructions say to bake those pies, not light them on fire, and then stick them in the broiler. <laughs> wow. Oh, I love this one. You do know the fire alarm isn't a timer, right? Here's another. Marie didn't tell you to burn it, Sharon. Ah, I love this one. Someone had a little too much Thanksgiving wine and turned the broiler on instead of the oven. 375 or 65 minutes, and this one is delightful. Happy Thanksgiving, everybody. Hey, everybody. Hey, hey. Hey, everybody. Happy Thanksgiving. Uh, I had to screenshot this simply so I could 
reposted every Thanksgiving. Thanks for the future laughs. Uh, let's see. Uh, another lady says, I burnt the bread tonight, but at least now I know who to blame. Thanks, Marie Callender. Um, <laughs> here's another one. It's even funnier because y'all know she doesn't know how to turn comments off or delete a post. <laughs> uh, oh, my goodness. Oh, this is nice. Somebody has a little flag that says, marked safe from Sharon's pie today. <laughs> Ooh. Another lady says, how many days did you bake this for? Now, I understand why she has F-O-R at the end of the, it should be just how many days did you bake this? But anyway, uh, let's see. Another one says, thanks to Marie Callender, my wife left, took the kids, the house, and even the dog, and all I have left is the credit card debt she put us in. <laughs> she left. She took the kids, the house, and even the dog. Thanks, Marie Callender. Uh, okay. Let's see. Ruin Thanksgiving in four words. Okay. The four words. Sharon Weiss bringing dessert. <laughs> Let's see. So somebody actually looked at this picture that Sharon put of the burnt pumpkin pie. And there is a hole in the, in, in the black burnt part in the top. And she says, the hole in the top tells me you really try to see if this is edible. I admire the optimism. <laughs> Let's see. Here's another one. If the success of your entire Thanksgiving hinged upon a frozen pie, it was probably doomed from the start. Anyhow, um, oh, this is a great one. Sharon, the smoking alarm. No, the smoke alarm. Sharon, the smoke alarm wasn't cheering you on. It was having a panic attack. Oh, this one reads like uh, Monty Python. I don't know if you're ready for any Monty Python. Hey, let me get some more water. Hang on. Like a Monty Python bit here. First shalt thou take out the holy pie. Then shalt thou set the oven to 400 Fahrenheit. No more, no less. 400 shall be the number thou shalt preheat. And the number of the preheating shall be 400. 500 shalt thou not set, neither set thou 200, excepting that thou then proceed to 400. Broil is right out. Once the number 400 being the correct number be reached, then settest thou thy holy pie of pumpkin upon thy middle rack and shall cook according to mine written instructions. So that's, I guess, translating the back of the Marie Calendar pie box instructions into Monty Python. Uh, <laughs> how about this? When the box says 300 degrees for 20 minutes, but you do 3,000 degrees for two minutes. Uh, <laughs> oh, here's a good one. Did you try to bake the pie and self-clean the oven at the same time? Uh, how about this one? Were you waiting on Marie Callender's to come and take it out of the oven for you? Uh... <laughs> Now, this is great. Um, 
I know you can't do visual humor on 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 the radio or on a podcast, but I'm going to try. There's a picture of a uh, school bus driving onto a train track, and then the train hitting the school bus. So the school bus is Marie Callender's pumpkin pie, and the train is Sharon Weiss. Oh my! Oh my! Let's see. Oh, here's a good one. Marie was in your kitchen smelling this pie. Is it burnt? Grown-ups take responsibility for their mistakes. Uh. <laughs> ooh, ooh. If you didn't smell that while it was bursting into flame in your oven, you need a COVID test stat. <clears throat> yeah, that's... Uh... No, I, I got to do a few more because this is just too good. <clears throat> Lady says, you're actually a teacher in my county. Hopefully you don't rant at any of your students about ruining things that are clearly your own fault. Uh, ooh, here's a good one. Hey, Brian, how do you like this one? Don't know if the directions on the back of the box specified this, but you were supposed to put the pie in the oven, not the fireplace. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Guys, 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 give her a break. She has the same profile picture 12 times in a row. It's only natural. She baked this pie 12 times in a row, too. Yeah, I just. Let me see. When Sharon gets roasted, more than she roasted that poor pie, and that's an achievement, where in the instructions did it tell you to throw it in a stove and yeet it to the sun? What does yeet mean? What, what does that mean, Yeet. I, I'm I'm with great trepidation I'm looking up the word yeet at Urban Dictionary because I don't know what Y E E T means. Uh to discard an item at a high velocity. Oh, okay. Oh well that, that makes sense. Yeah. So the directions didn't tell you to um, throw it in a stove and then yeet it to the sun. Don't think about it too hard. Fun fact, we're all actually using the residual heat coming off this pie to roast Sharon. <laughs> hey! <clears throat> yeah. And then somebody has a, a picture of a a microwave with some kind of food in it and smoke coming out of it. She says, well, I attempted to grab the popcorn for the comment section. Thanks a lot, Orville Redenbacher. You ruined the comment section. Uh, let's see. Another woman said, ooh, this is too much information. Says, my 17-year-old son made this pie all by himself, and he was probably stoned when he did it. What is wrong with you, Sharon? Uh, and if somebody else has a, somebody has a picture of an open oven with macaroni and cheese all over the inside door of the oven, just a big mess. It says, seems Marie Callender was on a tear this Thanksgiving. <laughs> yeah, so let's, let's blame, blame Marie for some more. Um, 
Oh yeah. I should have I should have just jumped off Facebook and gone to bed, but no, I got roped into reading two thousand of the best comments I've ever seen on Facebook. Thanks, Marie Callender. Oh, somebody else has a screenshot of Sharon Weiss from back in 2009 saying, Amy caught the popcorn on fire tonight, and the other night, the candle holder caught on fire. Maybe I should increase my insurance. At least we didn't need the flood insurance. And this lady, in response to this 12-year-old Facebook post, says, it's always Marie and Amy's fault, never Sharon's fault. Update the insurance policy, Sharon. Wow. 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 Oh, it was supposed to be 375 degrees Fahrenheit, not Celsius. See, that's the thing right there that I just... uh, (laughs) Oh, did you know Brad's wife was fired from her job at Cracker Barrel after 11 years of faithful service? Thanks a lot, Marie Callender's. (laughs) Uh, uh, another guy says i'd like to request a picture of your thanksgiving turkey how'd that turn out (laughs) oh this is a good one i bought a pint of ice cream and left it on the counter overnight and it melted thanks a lot briars (laughs) i uh I, uh, oh, this one must be from, uh, Great Britain because she sounds like a, a limey. What on, what on earth are you on about? The instructions on how to cook it are on the box you held on your hands when you removed the pie. Nowhere does it say lay the pie on your driveway and blast it with a flamethrower. Have mercy. What a nudge. <laughs> That's pretty good. I will now use thanks Marie Callender for any and every single thing that goes wrong in my life from now on. Oh, one more. So you didn't see the oven melting down like a reactor in Chernobyl after having that pie in there for three whole days and think maybe I've overcooked it. (laughs) Nobody could top that one. All right. So that is today's tweet of the day uh, by way of Facebook. And a big thank you to, uh, our friends at RedRiverYourWay.com for sponsoring it. RedRiverYourWay.com believes in freedom. You can buy your vehicle online, and they will drive it to your front door. All right. That having been said, that having been said, you ever heard of a guy named um, Dr. Oz? Dr. Oz, Dr. Mehmet Oz. He's a guy that Oprah made famous. And when I heard when I heard that Sean Hannity was going to have this liberal that Oprah made famous On his show last night, I knew, based on Sean Hannity's past performance, exactly what was going to happen. 
So Dr. Oz was going to come on Sean's show, say I'm running for United States Senate as a Republican in Pennsylvania, and Sean was going to pretend that Dr. Oz is a conservative and wish him well. Just like the way he pretended that Bruce Jenner was a conservative when he was running for governor of California, right? And Bruce Jenner came on Sean Hannity's show, and he had just been on The View earlier that day, and Sean said, well, now, uh, Caitlin, I, 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 don't think, uh, I don't think that Joy Behar intentionally misgendered you. So Sean, pretending that Bruce Jenner was a conservative, pretending Bruce Jenner was a woman, Sure, Sean will take one for the team every time you can count on him, all right? Or like the way Sean Hannity pretended, pretended Arnold, Arnold Schwarzenegger was a conservative when he was running for governor of California. We all knew he wasn't. Or like the way all the way back in 07, leading up to the 2008 presidential election, Sean Hannity was doing fundraisers or Rudy Giuliani's presidential campaign. Now, a lot of people think, hey, Giuliani, good guy. He was a lawyer for Trump, everything, you know, a hero after 9-11. But at the time, one of the big planks in Giuliani's platform was he was pro-abortion all nine months, any reason whatsoever, pro-partial birth abortion. None of that matters to Sean. If you're my friend, I'll pretend you're a conservative. Sean, who always says, I'm not a registered Republican, I'm a registered conservative. So let me tell you why Sean's buddy, Dr. Mehmet Oz, is not a conservative and why if you're in Pennsylvania, you should vote for somebody else in the Republican primary coming up next spring. The great Jack Posobiec, senior editor at Human Events, brings the receipts. First of all, Dr. Oz is a full-throated supporter of critical race theory. And so Jack links to a tweet from Dr. Oz from just summer of last year in which he says the effects of systemic racism have long been prevalent in the medical field, creating disparities in the health outcomes of black people and the COVID-19 pandemic has only exacerbated these disparities. And here's what his little little video says. COVID-19 illuminates how discrimination drives health disparities among black people. Nationwide protests over the killing of George Floyd in the hands of Minneapolis police has sparked a national conversation about systemic racism and police brutality. This is the guy that uh, Sean last night said it was a conservative. But according to a report from STAT, whatever that is, Oh, a health medicine news organization affiliated with the Boston Globe. The effects of systemic racism have long been prevalent in the medical field, creating disparities in the health outcomes of black people. Okay. According to STAT, black people are more likely than white people to die from cancer or more likely to suffer from things like diabetes and depression, and black mothers are more likely to die during childbirth. Well, are black babies more likely to be aborted? Would, would that bother you, Dr. Oz? No, it wouldn't. No, it wouldn't. He's just playing it. Okay, I think we got some audio coming up here. Here we go. 
Oh, it shows a guy talking, but they don't have what he says. Okay, fine. I'll turn it back down. He's quoting from uh, somebody named Jessica Isom, community psychiatrist at STAT, who says, the air you breathe, the food you eat, the visual representations of what your future could look like all are distorted by structural racism. Okay, this guy that Sean Hannity brought on his Fox News show and played patty cake with for over 10 minutes last night believes that the air you breathe, the air you breathe is distorted by structural racism, believes that the food you eat is distorted by structural racism. And he quotes some uh, psychiatrist at Yale. But Sean will tell you Dr. Oz is a conservative, and he wants you to vote for him in the Republican primary if you live in Pennsylvania for U.S. Senate instead of one of the actual conservatives. Okay? Got it? But wait, there's more. There's more. says, the COVID-19 pandemic has only exacerbated these disparities. Black Americans are dying for COVID-19 at close to 2.4 times the rate of white Americans. Now, as we all know, hospitals have a vested interest, and the feds have admitted this, in chalking up deaths that were not from COVID-19 to COVID-19. They make a lot of money that way. That doesn't bother Dr. Oz. He's going to pretend, pretend, pretend. Okay. Next, he quotes, let's see, who is this? Somebody named uh, Camera Phyllis Jones, an epidemiologist who says people of color right now are more likely to be infected and we're more likely to die. What we're seeing here is the direct result of racism. That's the thing that is slapping us in the face. Actually, it's lashing us like whips. Camera Phyllis Jones. But Sean Hannity will tell you that Dr. Oz is a conservative. Now, he must know better. He must know better. I got to find out. I got to find out. Camera Phyllis Jones. This is who Dr. Oz is quoting. Um, let's see. Nope. Nope. I guess she's not on LinkedIn. But that's fine. That's fine. You get the idea with uh, with Dr. Oz, that's for sure. But no, but wait, there's more. There's more. He's just getting started here. Um, the next quote on Dr. Oz's video on his tweet, a policy statement published last year by the American Academy of Pediatrics illustrated how racism itself is a core cause of health problems, not race. Oh, really? I thought black folks were more susceptible to sickle cell anemia. Uh, he quotes uh, Jacqueline Douge, medical director Howard County Health Department of Maryland saying people think of race 
as a biological factor in health outcomes when it is not. Okay, that goes, the thing goes on forever and ever. But Dr. Oz believes in critical race theory. No question about it. No question about it. And Dr. Oz, again, Jack Posobiec, human events, has the receipts. He says, here is Dr. Oz defending child rapist Rodney Reed, okay, on TV. Let's see. Oh, I got to turn the volume up. Sorry. You've been fighting for years. Without the support of these celebs, do you believe your brother would have been executed despite all the facts you have about this case? I believe without them amplifying uh, his case and everything, there was a good possibility that they would uh, succeed in what they were trying to do and murdering my brother. Dr. Ross, today at 2. Ah, yes. Well, now let's... uh... Let's find out a little bit more about child rapist Rodney Reed. Let's see who Dr. Oz was defending, who Dr. Oz was supporting over here. Let's just type in those words, child rapist Rodney Reed, in Twitter, and see what we come up with. Um, okay, this gets really rough, okay? So you got kids listening, you, you want to, you don't want them to hear this part, okay? Here's Matt Walsh from November 10th, 2019. Rodney Reed's semen was found on a raped 12-year-old girl. This makes him a confirmed child rapist, so everyone rallying around him should at least be honest and admit that they are rallying around a confirmed child rapist. His semen was also found on several other rape victims. He's a serial rapist and a child rapist, and then his DNA was found on a raped and murdered woman. He deserves to die. None of the people defending him would ever let this scumbag stay the night at their house. Okay? So that's that's who Dr. Oz was defending the serial child rapist, Rodney Reed. But you go ahead, Sean Handy. You go ahead and pretend your buddy, Dr. Oz, is a conservative. You go ahead and try to make sure a rhino, just like your other buddy, Lindsey Graham, gets elected to the open seat as a Republican in the U.S. Senate from Pennsylvania. We've come to expect this from you, Sean. It's a crying shame. It is absolutely a crying shame. But I'm not here to make friends with other people who do talk shows. You know? Oh, somebody said really looking into the Atlas adjustment. Yeah, that's a good idea. A couple of people today have said that they are glad that I found a way to do the podcast and shame on Cumulus. Right. 
Right. Uh, anyway, no, I just you know I just can't play along. I just can't take one for the team like Sean Hannity does and pretend that a guy with a lot of money is conservative because he's not. And Sean knows he isn't. Anyway, that having been said, there's uh, a lot more we need to get to here. Now, this guy uh, who was born and raised in Turkey who recently recently became an American citizen. He's a uh, NBA basketball player. His name is Enos Cantor. And he said... Uh, once is a new last name, Enos Cantor Freedom. And he's been very, very critical of LeBron James. Speaking of LeBron, LeBron's got COVID now. Did you hear that? LeBron's got COVID now, even though he's fully vaccinated. How'd that happen? Anyway, Enos Cantor over at uh, Enos Cantor Freedom, that's his new name, over at DailyWire.com. This dropped last night. Joe Morgan, Daily Wire, says Enos Cantor Freedom may just be the bravest man in sports. Going after the face of the NBA, LeBron James, for his unwillingness to speak out against human rights abuses in China, brings with it scrutiny that most athletes would shy away from. Freedom, Cantor legally changed his name on Monday after becoming a U.S. citizen, has not been shy in criticizing China for its record on human rights abuses. But going after LeBron James and Nike is different considering the league in which Enos Cantor Freedom plays. Both LeBron James and Nike hold massive influence within the NBA. In 2015, Nike and the NBA agreed to an eight-year apparel deal beginning with the 2017-2018 and the NBA season worth a reported $1 billion. And LeBron James is widely considered to be one of the greatest players in the history of the league. Cantor has criticized LeBron James and others in the past weeks for staying silent on China while they pretend to care about social justice. On Tuesday, Enos Cantor's freedom spoke after the Boston Celtics practice and said he was willing to sit down and speak with LeBron James in an uncomfortable conversation. According to ESPN, he says, sure, I'd love to sit down and talk to him. I'm sure it's going to be a very uncomfortable conversation for him. I don't know if he's going to want that. I'll make that really comfortable for him. He says, I don't know if he's educated enough, but I'm here to educate him, and I'm here to help him because it's not about money. It's about morals, principles, and values. It's about what you stand for. There are way bigger things than money. If LeBron stopped making money now, his grandkids and grandkids and grandkids can have the best life ever. In recent years, there's been an increase in athletes speaking out on issues outside of the playing field, an approach that Enos Cantor Freedom seems to support. 
He says, I feel like it's definitely time for athletes to stand up for the things they believe in, not just in America, but all over the world. In an October video posted to social media, Enos Cantor Freedom first went after Nike and founder Phil Knight for their unwillingness to speak out on atrocities committed by the Chinese government. He says, your company says that you're about making a positive impact in our communities, and that's true. Yes, you are. Here in the United States, Nike stands with Black Lives Matter. Nike stands with Stop Asian Hate. Nike stands with the Latino community. And Nike stands with the LGBTQ community. But when it comes to China, Nike remains silent. He says, you do not address police brutality in China. You do not speak up about discrimination against the LGBTQ community. You do not say a word about the oppression of minorities in China. You're scared to speak up. He went on to claim that Nike's products are produced by forced labor, specifically forced labor of Uyghurs in Western China. Later in the video, he mentioned LeBron James and NBA legend Michael Jordan offering to buy them plane tickets to China so they could visit these slave labor camps and see with their own eyes what's going on. This is, uh, this is an interesting guy, and it's going to be interesting what, uh, what comes out of it because there's no way in the world, there's no way in the world LeBron James sits down with this guy. Oh, by the way, um, Dr. Fauci has confirmed the first case of this Omicron variant of the China virus here in uh, the U.S. who was somebody fully vaccinated. So, <sighs> so there you go. There you go. Also, by the way, um, Joe Biden's approval numbers remain abysmally low in a new nationwide survey, dragging his presidency and congressional Democrats down. That from American Greatness. Deb Hine over there, American Greatness, has the article. Uh, Chris Buskirk, editor and publisher at American Greatness, says Biden approval plunges to 36% according to new Trafalgar poll. Democrat unpopular across America. Generic ballot gives Republicans a big advantage. And then Jesse Kelly, great uh, talk show host out of Houston, says, for those wondering why Biden won't reverse course on anything when America hates what he's doing, number one, he's not in charge. Number two, the people who are in charge aren't concerned in the least with the second term. They all go on to make six or seven figures in academia or media after this. Yeah. I mean, George Stepan, all of us, was a big guy in the uh, Clinton administration, and he's making seven figures for ABC, right? Still acting as a Democrat operative, making seven figures for ABC, right? Will Chamberlain, lawyer and co-publisher of Human Events, says elections matter, winning matters. Don't listen to anyone who tells you otherwise. Now, now, what might that be referring to? What might that be referring to? 
Well, let's think about it. If the people of America had listened to the rhinos, the Trump haters, and not elected Trump in the first place, you wouldn't have gotten Gorsuch, Kavanaugh, and Amy Coney Barrett. Now, each one of them has disappointed us in different Supreme Court rulings. Well, based on their questions today, and, and I, I pretty much thought this even before. I mean, I've been thinking this for months. As much of a disappointment as they had been, based on how they've ruled before and, and how they've written before, I believe that all three of them were, were pro-life, and you knew Thomas and Alito are already pro-life, right? And based on their questions today, I would not be surprised if Roe v. Wade and the Casey decision are both overturned at least five to four coming up in June. Um, that certainly wouldn't have happened if Hillary had won in 2016 for all these people of so-called people of principles. so-called people of principle who were determined that Trump should not be elected, determined that Hillary should be elected because uh, you know, Trump's a bad guy or whatever. Now, speaking of freedom and speaking of your health care, have you heard what this... Uh, this Jim Cramer guy did over at CNBC? Have you heard what this Jim Jim Cramer guy said over at CNBC? He uh he wants the government to require vaccination and use the military to enforce it. Here he is. With the new Omicron variant sweeping the globe, how do we finally put an end to this pandemic? How do we save lives and get business back to normal so everybody can put dinner on the table? Simple. The federal government needs to require vaccines, including booster shots, for everyone in America by, say, January 1st. There are still some things that need to be done at a national level, and this is one of them. But as we brace for another wave of new deaths from a virus that has killed more Americans than World War II or even the Civil War, it's time to admit that our government has lost the ability or the will to make our people do the right thing. Okay, he's lying. You may not know it, but he's lying. We haven't lost that many people to this virus. The feds have admitted 94% of the people they chalk up as COVID deaths are people that just tested positive for COVID but had an average of over two and a half other comorbidities. So you can die from Lou Gehrig's disease, ALS, and have lung cancer and diabetes, but if you get a positive COVID test, then they'll say you died from COVID. Now, maybe he's not lying. Maybe he's too stupid and ignorant to know that, but I'm just telling you the truth. Nobody wants to be the bad guy, so we've allowed a pastiche of uncoordinated health organizations to dictate an on-again, off-again series of measures that mostly just leave us baffled and confused. We haven't centralized the issue to the point where the White House actually seems to take responsibility. Let's see, first it was the CDC, and then the FDA, then the National Institutes of Health, mostly coordinating policy through talk shows. 
Then we left vaccination policy to individual companies. Now it's toothless OSHA going back and forth on what's allowed in factories. But nobody with any power is saying the frontline workers need to be vaccinated. It's just plain wrong. And most of us are sick of it. Even as a vocal anti-vax minority is always grabbing the mic. This charade must end. See, what he's ignoring is that plenty of people who got vaccinated got COVID. Plenty of people who were vaccinated died from the vaccines. You don't want to hear about that. The government must require vaccinations, not of this group or that group, not company by company, not cruise ship by cruise ship or airline by airline or governor by governor. The buck stops at the White House. Some of us are old enough to remember when we were told we had to get a needle stuck into our arms because of some disease that was so scary we, didn't, we were afraid to talk about it. The disease was called polio. No one knew how you got it, but you were scared to go to a place where anyone might congregate, a swimming pool, a park. Then we got a vaccine, vaccine that worked, and President Eisenhower said we would end polio. Yeah, this is not a vaccine, though. It's a gene therapy, and it doesn't work. Clearly, it doesn't work. This guy's an idiot. He pulled it off because he didn't give us any choice. Soon after, as if the needle were too hard, they came up with a sugar cube. Uh, they being the scientists at the time. And we lined up and took them, too. Mine tasted like maraschino cherries. Yeah, like the Del Monte fruit cocktail my mom served, but only better. Lord knows what happened if you didn't partake. But back then, anyone who refused to get vaccinated would get ratted out immediately because we knew that person could hurt other people. The commonweal was a, a commonweal. Now we're engaged in a similar struggle with COVID, and Eisenhower would be aghast. We have immunocompromised people who are incubators for every variant to come, walking around lawfully unvaccinated? That's psychotic. We have companies that have tried hard to get people vaccinated and now backing down? No, you're the psychotic. You're the psychotic, Jim Cramer. And you can quote me on that. We have governors who want to be president by grandstanding on a foolish state's right issue? The right to get sick and get other people sick? So it's time to admit that we have to go to war against COVID. Require vaccination universally. Have the military run it. If you don't want to get vaccinated, you better be ready to prove your conscientious objector status in court. And even then, you need to help in the war effort by staying home until we finally beat. Okay, now it goes to an ad. You get the point. Jim Cramer, CNBC, says the government should require everyone to be vaccinated. And he says the military should run it. And don't think Biden's handlers aren't aware of this. Don't think they wouldn't love to get away with it. Probably the only thing that is, is keeping this from happening is our Second Amendment. I don't know if you know what's going on in Australia, but they're putting people in camps in Australia. Uh, uh, by the way, they're putting asymptomatic people who've tested negative in camps, young people in Australia. Why? Because they can. Because they can get away with it. It's all about control. It's all about control. So I needed to share that with you. Because that's outrageous. But where does it stop? Where does it stop? Okay. Um, there is a, a feud going on in the Republican caucus of the U.S. House of Representatives. Um, Marjorie Taylor Greene, who is a great conservative uh, freshman congresswoman out of Northwest Georgia, she and President Trump are encouraging someone to primary Nancy Mace, who is a Republican in name only, 
South Carolina, who pretends to be a conservative, pretends to be pro-life, but she's not. And Nancy Mace is reported to have been cussing out Marjorie Taylor Greene and minority leader um, Kevin McCarthy has asked for both of them to calm down and get along. And then I go into, here's Nancy Mace on uh, Fox Business. I'm going to defend my record. She said today that I was pro-abortion, which could not be further from the truth. There are exceptions in that bill for women who are victims of rape and incest because I put them in there. Okay, Marjorie Taylor Greene says, like I said, Nancy Mace is pro-abortion. Protecting abortion is pro-abortion. No baby should be murdered for any reason. Hashtag Two-Face Mace. There you go. There you go. Now, I want to go back to I want to go back to the um, abortion case which was argued today in the Supreme Court. Um, the governor of Mississippi, Tate Reeves, for some reason was on Meet the Press with Chuck Todd. I have no idea why conservatives keep on going on these shows where they're treated so unfairly. But anyway, uh, this is from uh, Sunday's Meet the Press. Abortions is vaccines allow you to protect yourself. Abortions actually go in and kill other American babies. And let's just put this in perspective. Governor, vaccines are not about yourself. Governor, hang on a minute. A vaccine is about protecting a larger community. A vaccine is about preventing spread. You could argue a vaccine mandate is a pro-life position. You could certainly argue that, Chuck, but even if you listen to Dr. Fauci's interview with you earlier today, he made it very clear that the vaccine may not keep you from getting the virus. It may not keep you from spreading the virus, but it can keep you from ending up in the hospital. That's what's been proven during this Delta surge that we've seen in, uh, in America. Well, it really hasn't. Plenty of people get the vaccine and get sick, but anyway. Is that the virus is continuing to being spread even amongst those who are vaccinated. Oh, okay. Well, you did a minute. Okay, all right. Go ahead. Conversely, when you're talking about uh, the pro-life position of protecting unborn babies, let's put it also in perspective. The fact is that during this very horrible and challenging time since I was sworn into office in right. January of 2020, Chuck, we've had 800,000 American lives lost because of COVID. And my heart. Well, no, we really haven't. 94% of them had over two and a half other comorbidities, but whether he knows that or not, that's what the FDA has admitted. Aches for every single one of those individuals that that has died uh, because of COVID. Over 10,000 Mississippians. My heart breaks for every single one of them. But since Roe was enacted, 62 million American babies have been aborted and have therefore been killed. And that's why I think it's very important that people like myself and others across this country stand up for those unborn children because they don't have the ability to stand up for themselves. Governor Tate Reeves, Republican of Mississippi, I appreciate you coming on and sharing your perspective with us, sir. Yeah, well, that was good. Good job. Good job indeed. However... Fox's Peter Ducey says on Thursday, that's tomorrow, the White House plans to announce some of the strictest COVID restrictions on Americans yet. Really? Here goes. But it sounds like on Thursday, according to the Washington Post, and uh, we've, we're 
we have made contact with some White House folks. They're going to announce some of the strictest COVID regulations yet on American citizens, including, according to the Washington Post, requiring all Americans who return from abroad to quarantine in their house for up to seven days. If that is something that they're gonna propose in this speech on Thursday, there are a lot of questions. How do you enforce that? Do you send somebody to the door of somebody that just came back from overseas, regardless of vaccination status or testing status, to make sure that they are home? And also, does that apply to everybody coming into the country, not just folks who come and document it uh, at an airport, but also the undocumented? Yeah, people coming across the um, southern border. I kind of doubt it. I kind of doubt it would uh, apply to them. You know what I'm saying? I kind of doubt that. So, that having been said, let's... Uh, Talk about Fauci for a minute. Jim Hoft over the Gateway Pundit has a new article entitled, It Wasn't Just Beagles and Money. Fauci's NIH also funded medical experiments on AIDS orphans in New York City. Did you know this? He says, in August, Gateway Pundit contributor Cassandra, Fairbank, Cassandra Fairbanks broke the story on Dr. Fauci's use of taxpayer money to torture beagles and barbaric animal testing. Dr. Fauci funded a study in Tunisia where beagle dogs were eaten alive by parasite-infected flies. White Coat Waste Project, taxpayer watchdog group, provided the Gateway Pundit with new examples of Dr. Fauci facilitating cruel and unnecessary taxpayer-funded experimentation on dogs They would make the dogs lie down and then put their heads in these containers with these ravenously hungry sand flies who basically uh, torment them to death. Dr. Fauci also spent over $16 million in taxpayer funds on disturbing toxic brain injection experiments on monkeys in 2019. And Dr. Fauci was more recently caught funding gain-of-function research in Wuhan, China, Laboratory blame for the production and leak of the coronavirus. He's lied about his funding of the lab under oath numerous times. But now this. Dr. Fauci's NIH was also caught funding experiments on AIDS orphans at a New York City hospital in 2004. The Fauci NIH approved experiments on hundreds of New York City orphans. Government agencies and pharmaceutical companies use the orphans in deadly AIDS drug trials. And he links. He links to it. He brings the receipts. For the Incarnation Children's Center investigation. Oh, yes. Here's the excerpt. In 2005, the city of New York hired the Vera Institute 
to form a final report on the drug trials. Vera was given no access to medical records for any of the children used in trials. Their report was published in 2008. They reported that 25 children died during the drug studies, that an additional 55 children died following the studies in foster care. And according to Tim Ross, director of the Child Welfare Program at Vera, as of 2009, 29% of the remaining 417 children who were used in drug studies had died out of a total of 532 children that are admitted to having been have been used. The um, the Wikipedia writers cover up all the details as is expected. No payment or compensation has been paid to any of the children used in the trials or to their families. A hospital nurse later spoke out to reporters about the testing. She reported that children would immediately get sick, break out, or throw up during the testing. They were orphans at the Incarnation Children's Center in New York City. Well, let's, uh, let's hear some of what this hospital nurse said. ICC interview with Liz Brown and Mimi Pasquale about uh, Dr. Fauci's uh, experiments on uh, AIDS orphans in New York City. So, you know, every case is different. Every child is different. Well, the children that talked about the, that they didn't want to take it, what, what kind of, were they, they serious about this? Were they adamant about this? How did they express this to you? Well, the older ones, you know, when I first started working, there was just babies, so they really couldn't talk. They would just throw it, spit it right back up. And, um... As they got older, and they started, you know, saying, med refusal, med refusal, med refusal, when they refused it X amount of time. Why did they refuse it? What were some of the physical reasons that they were saying, I don't want this? Um, some of them, they, they, they made them so sick that they couldn't get up and go to school. Or when they were in school, they couldn't function like the regular kids. So they just didn't, you know, they didn't want it when for they, whatever reason. When they got sick, what kind of symptoms did they display? Um, stomach cramping. Mostly that and, and constant diarrhea, you know, that wouldn't allow them to stay focused in a classroom like a regular child would. I'm sleepy, a lot of the kids, you know. They were on drugs so much that they were just tired. They just couldn't function. And Mimi, when the children refused to t take the drugs, um, what would happen to them? You could only refuse X amount of times. After that, um, you get a tube inserted into you. A G2. A G2 was inserted into, into the children. Uh, did, did you insert that or how did, how did they oh, do no, that? Oh, no, those are surgically um, put in. So they were sent to doctors to get tubes that, that to put into their bellies to take the drugs. Yeah. Um, Mimi, when you would watch the children as you were uh, uh, putting the, 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 these, these, these drugs, these medications into them, were you, were you, what, what did you see the, the infants? How did you see the infants respond to this? Um, you know, at first with meds, it's not like the only direct thing you see, okay, yeah, you'll get a little diarrhea or a little, um, not a little, you'll get diarrhea or you'll throw up. And that was like, for us, it, it became so, re so regular that it was like, okay, this is normal. And um, after a while, you know, other kids will react different. And maybe one will break up in a rash. One of my kids um, came in and 
um, a couple of months later, you know, she came in and she was fine. She had a stroke and she went blind. And you know, after after being given these meds, yes, because supposedly her case was um, she wasn't told she wasn't aware of her HIV status. So if you wasn't aware, you wasn't taking medicine. You're in there for that. So, so Mimi, when did you see with with as you kept? How long were you there? How long were you at ICC? Almost ten years. Were the kids getting better with the med with the the stuff you were putting into them, or were they getting worse? Um, every like I said, every child is different. I noticed that the kids that had um, mental issues, they just like the medicines really didn't even phase them at all. They wasn't even taking as as much medicine. There was other kids that you know, the moment you gave them medicine, their their body was just rejected. I can't deal with this. Dr. Fauci's NIH used orphans. AIDS orphans in New York City. Basically as lab rats, as guinea pigs to test this, uh, this AIDS drug. And some of them died. And a lot of them were in really bad shape and tormented for years. Well, this is the guy you trust, this Fauci, this guy you trust. I, I, I can't. He belongs under the jail. In my humble opinion, you're entitled to it. By the way, the um, ICC investigation website offers several documents and interviews with children and child care workers, the hospital who participated in the research. Uh, wow, that's uh, that's just horrific. The Incarnation Children's Center story. I uh, it's 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 hard to know how to process that, other than to say that this guy belongs under the jail. He really does. And yet, the mainstream media and the liberals, but I repeat myself, they act like he hung the moon. Alex Berenson, former uh, New York Times reporter, the author of the book Pandemia, predicted that people will start ignoring government messages on COVID because the government's been wrong about everything. He predicted that last night on Tucker Carlson's Fox News TV show. He said, people don't want to get their kids vaccinated, and the powers that be are very well aware that vaccines are failing, and they want to blame this thing, and it's not going to work. People are done being scared, and frankly, I'm so busy reading scientific papers that people send me and trying to figure out what's really going on with vaccine failure, but I had no idea the hysteria was like this on CNN and other channels. It's insane. I really got to look at the lies and the misstatements and the mistakes on how they were wrong about school closures, wrong about lockdowns, wrong about test and trace. They appear to have been very wrong about vaccines. They've been wrong about everything. They're never held accountable. And at some point, people are just going to stop listening. 
I think it's happening more quickly in the United States because we have a stronger constitution. But I have to believe it's going to happen in Europe, too. Well, see, here's the thing that the mainstream media, including Fox, as far as I can tell, they don't want to tell you about. Millions of people around the world have taken to the streets to protest against vaccine mandates. Australia, New Zealand, all over Europe, millions of people clogging streets for miles. Do you make less than $50,000 a year? Pardon me. In the middle of um, major cities. But you'd never know it. You'd never know it. So Europe is rising up. They certainly are rising up. Now you got this Omicron, which is an anagram for moronic, and uh, it's it's one of the um, one of the letters in the Greek alphabet. See, they passed over G X I because that's the name of the Chinese premier, and so they don't want to uh, they don't want to upset him, right? But. The doctors in South Africa say, yeah, we got four people with Omicron, all double vaccinated. And just mild cold symptoms, like having a mild cold. Oh, oh, got to freak out. Oh, no, another variant. Yeah, but it's like a mild cold. Oh, but it's a variant. Oh, we got to shut down everything. Now, Fauci. Fauci was taking questions from the press about 20 minutes ago. And who knows, maybe the press is even done. Here he is. And then in terms of uh, this, uh, making a determination that... Yeah, I mean, again, it, 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 there's the official determination of what something is for a variety of reasons. For example, employment and getting vaccinated. What is the definition? That will stay that way. For optimal protection... I'm talking about what your personal effort to be optimally protected. That's why I say we should all get boosters. Well, what about in terms of the mandate, like you have a vaccine mandate, right? Uh, at what point does the booster <laughs> become part of the mandate? Yeah, I can't answer that right now, but I know that for the time being, the official definition of fully vaccinated is two. But do you see that changing? We keep having these variants. It, it, We're it, concerned about them. It could change. It, it could, could change. change. It could change. Yes. Change? Well, I don't know. Let's see what, what what rolls out now. I mean, I know if I say it's going to change, it's going to get spread out that that's it. We don't know right now whether it should change, okay. but it might. Quarantine for international visitors. What, do, you, do you think international visitors, when they arrive, they issue quarantine for seven days, regardless of vaccination status? <laughs> Well, you know, there are certain uh, requirements for people who are, you're talking about foreign visitors? Yes. Yeah. Going yeah, forward. yeah obviously, if they are, they have to they have to get tested within within 24 hours. And when they come back, if they're not vaccinated, they have to be in quarantine. They, they're recommended for quarantine and recommended to get a test within three days. If they are vaccinated, yes. I'm sorry. If, if, they, if they are vaccinated, no. should they quarantine? Well, again, we're going to get confused here. You're talking about United States uh, citizens or you're talking about anybody that comes into the country anybody. from anywhere. I'm not sure what that's going to be. I think we'll have to just check with the CDC.
He's not sure about much, is he? All right, now let me remind you. And maybe you haven't heard this before. This guy named Dr. Kerry Mullis. He's a guy that uh, developed the PCR technique, polymerase chain reaction technique. And uh, Fauci and some others wanted to use it to test for, uh, for HIV back in the 80s. He said no. No. PCR is not a test to figure out whether you have a virus or not. Well, he passed away in August of 2019, right before all this stuff came down. And um, the FDA, CDC, NIH, World Health Organization, 50 state health departments ignored what the guy who developed PCR technique and won the Nobel Prize for it said, which is it is not a test to determine whether you have a virus or where they are sick. And they're like, oh, yeah, it is. It's how we're going to use it. Listen to what this guy said about Fauci, the liberal's hero, the media's hero. But I repeat myself. What is it, what, what is it about humanity that, 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 that wants to go to the, all the details and stuff and listen? You know, these guys like Fauci get up there and start talking. You know, he doesn't know anything really about anything. And I'd say that to his face. Nothing. The man thinks you can take a blood sample and stick it in an electron microscope. And if it's got a virus in there, you'll know it. He doesn't understand electron microscopy, and he doesn't understand medicine. And he, he should not be in a position like he's in. Most of those guys up there on the top are just total administrative people, and they don't know anything about what's going on at the bottom. You know, those guys have got an agenda, which is not what we would like them to have, being that we pay for them to take care of our health in some way. They've got a personal kind of agenda. They make up their own rules as they go. They change them when they want to. And they smugly, like Tony Fauci, does not mind going on television in front of the people who pay his salary and lie directly into the camera. You can't expect the sheep to really respect the best and the brightest. They don't know the difference, really. I mean, I, I like humans, don't, don't get me wrong, but basically there is a, there is a, there's a vast, the vast majority of them do not possess the, the ability to judge who is and who isn't a really good scientist. I mean, that's a problem. That's a main problem, actually, with science, I'd say, in this century, because science is being judged by people. Funding is being done by people who don't understand it. Okay, who do we trust? Fauci? Fauci doesn't know enough to, you know. If Fauci wants to get on television with somebody who knows a little bit about this stuff and debate him, he could easily do it, because he's been asked. I mean, I've had a lot of people President of the University of South Carolina asked Fauci if he'd come down there and debate me on the stage in front of the student body because I wanted somebody who was from the other side to come down there and balance my, because I felt like, well, these guys can listen to me, but I need to have somebody else down here that's going to tell me the other side. But Fauci didn't want to do it. He didn't want to do it. I wonder why. I wonder why. You know, sometimes people ask me, um, especially people in central Arkansas. They say, Doc, we really miss hearing you on the radio. I mean, we love the podcast and everything. Don't get us wrong, but we miss being able to turn on the radio and hear you. Is there any chance you think you might ever go back to the radio station and the company that fired you? And I said, well... Um, 
I can't imagine the CEO and the board of directors of Cumulus Media ever announcing that they were wrong. Uh, they've lost a lot of money in advertising. Now, not just by firing me, but by firing other people in the company and other parts of the country that refuse to get to, to refuse to take the needle for what they call the vaccines. It's actually a gene therapy, an experimental drug. And they don't care. They lost a lot of money. Now, why might that be? Jeffrey M. McCall over at cnsnews.com, I think, may have the answer. He has a new article out. says, can media cover Build Back Better fairly when it awards them government goodies? Have you heard about this? The constitutional protection is guaranteed, and the First Amendment applies to all citizens. Everybody has freedom to practice religion as they see fit and to speak freely. It might come as a surprise to the media establishment and even government legislators that the First Amendment protection for freedom of the press also applies to all Americans. Basically, every American is a member of the press. When government bestows special status and privileges to so-called journalists that aren't provided for all citizens, the nation enters the dangerous realm of press exceptionalism. That's the notion that journalists play such a unique role in American democracy that they need to be on pedestals. The problem is that journalists can't be surrogates of rank-and-file Americans when they're being bought off, stay with me, when they're being bought off and compromised by governmental entities privileging the repertorial class. The journalism industry is being made part of the establishment by an increasing flow of government enticements. The Biden administration's Local Journalism Sustainability Act is part of the Build Back Better package. It's working its way through Congress now. The bill helps fund payroll expenses of news outlets and generates revenue for those outlets by giving tax incentives to advertisers and subscribers. This ill-conceived legislation is supercharged press exceptionalism that will take the teeth out of the press's historic watchdog role. The news industry, indeed, does have financial challenges, and media executives should well figure out how to keep their failing operations out of red ink, but that's not the issue here. The issue is how a watchdog press can aggressively hold the government accountable when it itself is being soothed and distracted by government doggy treats. News coverage of Biden's spending package is now necessarily compromised since news organizations stand to benefit from its passage. Journalists and politicians have historically kept an arm's length and at times adversarial relationship. Okay? But journalism executives should recognize government handouts for precisely what they are, attempts to maneuver and manipulate press sympathies to the government's advantage. States also want to patronize and exploit the media and exploit the media with special perks. California's Governor Gavin Newsom has signed a new law that gives reporters unfettered access to demonstrations and protests otherwise closed off by the police. Never mind that there might be legitimate security concerns when police close off a protest or that the mere presence of media can exacerbate demonstrations often designed specifically for press attention. Even Facebook wants to get on the Press Exceptionalism Act. The social media giant has increased its protections of journalists from online harassment, shielding journalists in ways other figures in the public arena are not. 
Now, any online harassment is inappropriate, of course, but journalists deserve no more protection than anybody else who works in the public eye. Essentially, all citizens can declare themselves journalists on their own say-so. They can then gather and disseminate news and commentary through whatever means they can manage to access. That's exactly what the constitutional framers had in mind. The Internet era makes publishing easy. Regular citizens don't need a printing press or a broadcast license to serve as journalists. Constitutionally, people who get paid to do journalism or work for media organizations aren't special or anybody or any better than anybody else. But every time the government provides financial benefits or special access for journalists, there must follow a formal definition of who qualifies as a journalist to get the exclusive goodies. That leaves out all citizen journalists, of course, who are well empowered today with news gathering capability on their smartphones. Special perks for certain anointed journalists separates them from the very citizenry they're, ho- they're supposed to be serving and makes them beholden to the government structures handing out those perks. Late Supreme Court Justice Potter Stewart gave an address at Yale in 1974 in which he touted the important role a free press plays in American democracy. He also explained that an autonomous press should not ex- expect government help as it executes its role. Instead of looking for government favors, the press would be better off to focus on improving the service it was designed to provide for news consumers. Credibility ratings for the press are near record lows. In November, a study from Rasmussen reports, respondents overwhelmingly reported they do not trust the political reporting they get from their supposed press surrogates. Public Public respect and prestige will be bestowed on the press when it is earned. That should mean more to the journalism industry than any handouts coming from powerful government or corporate interests. News industry leaders should reject shameful government handouts, in other words, bribes, and fight for the autonomy the constitutional framers envisioned. That's a Jeffrey M. McCall, professor of communication at DePaul University. And the article at CNS News he just wrote is, can media cover Build Back Better fairly when it awards them government goodies? Now, I share that with you because people who ask me, are you ever going to go back on the radio in Little Rock? And I say, well, I don't think the CEO and board of directors of Cumulus Media are ever going to admit they did anything wrong in firing me and others like me who refused to get the jab. Now this Build Back Better thing, if it passes, I think there's something like $1.4 billion in there from media companies. And I would not at all be surprised if NBC, ABC, CBS, um, CNN, entities like that would get more than anybody else. But Cumulus Media would get their chunk. And that's why I think they don't care that they're losing advertising dollars from advertisers all over the country who are upset with them for trying to force employees to get the jab. So... I, you know, I never say never. You don't want to put God in a box. But we are thrilled at what we're doing here, you know. And this is uh, what episode number 36, we've, we've had almost 70,000 downloads. So it's, it's working out really well. So I, I kind of doubt I'm going back. But you never know. I want to share one more thing with you before we go. 
uh, Jordan Boyd over the Federalist article entitled Salvation Army Lies Tries to Cover Up Critical Race Guide. The Salvation Army issued a statement on Tuesday trying to walk back its racist claims in its Let's Talk About Racism guide after facing a backlash. Their announcement states, and I quote, elements of the recently issued Let's Talk About Racism guide led some to believe we think they should apologize for the color of their skin or that the Salvation Army may have abandoned its biblical beliefs for another philosophy or ideology. That was never our intention, so the guide has been removed for appropriate view, unquote. Now, Salvation Army, along with the International Social Justice Commission, published the now-hidden 67-page booklet with the intent to, quote, foster conversations about racism and race so that we can join together to fight the evil of racism and create a more just and equitable society, unquote. The guide uses critical care ideology buzzwords such as anti-racism, white supremacy, pardon me, not critical care, critical race ideology buzzwords such as anti-racism, white supremacy, colorblindness, and privilege to suggest that people should, quote, lament, repent, and apologize for biases or racist ideologies held and actions committed, unquote. The Salvation Army's resource not only claims that systemic racism is still a problem in the United States, but demands that white people examine themselves to, quote, work toward a church that models the kingdom value of unified diversity, unquote. Now, <clears throat> embedded in this article are a couple of tweets from Sean Davis of the Federalists responding to the Salvation Army, saying, you published a racist document that devoted an entire chapter chapter to attacking what you call whiteness, claiming moving to the suburbs was racist and told people to stop being colorblind. You got caught, tried to disappear the document to avoid accountability, and now you're lying about it. Read for yourself the racist trash that Salvation Army peddled and then tried to, tried to erase from the Internet. And he's got the goods on him. So the article continues, let's talk about racism also loosely outlines the Salvation Army's desire to continue push, pushing critical race theory from the top down and reorient the organization to change, quote, personal or corporate worship life to ensure that I slash we are pursuing racial equity and unity, unquote. The guide asks, how would the Salvation Army at the corporate level, be strengthened by taking an active stance for racial equality and unity. Oh, no, no, not racial equality, racial equity and unity. Equity, equality is making sure everybody has the same uh, opportunity. Equity is making sure everybody has the same results. That's communism. The guide asks, yeah, let me make sure I get it right this time. How would the Salvation Army at the corporate level be strengthened by taking an active stance for racial equity and unity? Okay, the Salvation Army's statement overlooks the problems in its document and instead chides unnamed groups for attempting to, quote, mislabel our organization to serve their own agendas, unquote. The Salvation Army claimed, again quoting, they have claimed that we believe our donors should apologize for their skin color, that the Salvation Army believes America is an inherently racist society and that we've abandoned our Christian faith 
for one ideology or another. Those claims are simply false, and they distort the very goal of our work. I don't think they're false at all. You would be trying to uh, hide what you did. Anyway, that's Jordan Boyd, staff writer at The Federalist, with the article, Salvation Army Lies, Tries to Cover Up Critical Race Guide. I've never been able to figure out the Salvation Army. I know they've done a lot of good work, but are they a church or not a church? Because they don't say the Lord's Prayer, and they don't do communion. So are they a church or not a church? But that, that's for another day. That's a whole different show. All right, uh, appreciate y'all, and appreciate my staff for putting up with me. This is the longest um, show that we've done. You've been listening to episode 36 of the all-new Doc Washburn Show. Today's program has been produced by Tim Terrible, directed by Mick Messy. This has been a terribly messy production. Portions of today's show will be taken overseas and dropped. If you'd like a transcript of today's episode of the all-new Doc Washburn Show, simply peel the roof off a Rolls-Royce panel truck and send it to Mansur's Computer Solutions, 7th floor of the Ephemeral B. Smoot Building, Whitehall, Arkansas, in care of Sheriff Mansur Sempier X. Well, that's the way it is. Wednesday, December 1st, 2021.